Welcome to the Primitive Initiative Podcast. Today, I have Hans Amato as my guest. We talk about Nigella sativa, otherwise known as black seed, starch and fiber problems, preserving youth, liver health, and stressful serotonin. Because of the nature of long-distance calls, there can be a couple technical hiccups. I do my best to give you guys the best sound quality, but still some may remain. Thankfully, the great content of the show should make it easy to overlook. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody, I'm here with Hans Amato from menelite.com, and I met him on the Rate Pete forum, or at least I read his threads and stuff like that, and he posts some amazing stuff. How are you, Hans? I'm great. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, not a problem. I'm glad you joined me. I know you're on the other side of the world right now, um, South Africa, right? Yeah, that's that's about like like a seven-hour difference, I think. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, um, how are things over there? Yeah, it's fantastic, man. It's it's not that late at my side, so everything is great. Just winding off and just enjoying, the, you know, the rest of the day. How are things on your side? It's good. Things are getting really cold. I live in northern America, or you know, the north of America, uh, around Minnesota. So, um, very, very cold. I'm guessing the weather is much better where you are. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, you know almost getting to summer here, which is awesome. <laughs> really enjoying, right. you know, spring. That's my favorite season. Yeah, that's that's so crazy to think about that. We're going into winter right now here and it's fall. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely always feel like better metabolism and health just when, you know, the weather is warmer. You know, you forget how good you feel in the summer and the spring until, you know, it comes back around again. Yeah, tell me about it. I feel like I'm preparing to go to war or something come winter. <laughs> yeah. But and you know I'm from uh, I'm, I have Middle Eastern descent and um, my skin's a little darker and as a child I was used to the Mediterranean so the winters here have always kind of put me down a little bit but you know with repeats information and kind of biohacking for lack of a better term it's made things better with like red light therapy and UV lamps and you know the 250 watt lamp stuff like that. Yeah, I just wanted to say you you probably need a lot more heat, um, you know, through a, a heat lamp or something like that. Yeah, heat and light. <laughs> a lot of light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you want to kind of get into your background and your journey, uh, how you ended up like on the repeat forum, kind of where I found you, like your journey up until then? Yeah, sure. Okay, so. After high school, I went to university, I got my BA in health science, and at that time, I actually had almost no interest in health, I was just all into exercise and stuff, mm-hmm. and only only after I, I finished university, I went back to the family business, where um, it, it was basically a cosmetic business, but they had a small department, which was basically supplements and stuff, so I was feeling kind of unfulfilled in the business. I was like asking, because it's family business, and my grandmother ran the business, my grandma and grandfather. So I asked my grandmother, like, isn't there something specific I can do in terms of perhaps re- do some research for the supplements? Because I actually found that it interested me. Um, and actually then suddenly I found myself like very fascinated with health. And I actually started researching vitamins and minerals. And I just... And it, it was just, it felt so natural. 
I was so naturally drawn to wanting to learn more about the body. And you know, it was difficult because you always go online and you find these, uh, how should I put, like hippie blogs. So you, you never really you know, get to know the truth behind everything. So, you know, I had to dive in deep and start fully researching everything in regards to health. And, you know, I, I was also on a journey of trying to find the truth. And because I was interested in bodybuilding, I did some of the research from Vince Gironda. And that's when I got, uh, maybe I should say, misled into the low-carb stuff because he was into low-carb diets and like high-protein diets and so on. Um, which basically he had to do because if you're going to eat a lot of meat and especially eggs, you know, your calories is going to be very high unless you cut the carbs. So in some regard, that made sense to me. Um, so he was a really big fan of vitamin E. And, and then I started doing some research about vitamin E because I was fascinated by his techniques and everything. And I, when I was researching vitamin E, I, I kept getting this link to this, this website called the repeatforum.com. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I was looking at PubMed sites and I was like trying to ignore this, but it kept popping back up. And I think it was like, because I was specifically researching uh, wheat germ extract and there wasn't anything about wheat germ extract. So this link kept popping back up with wheat germ. And I got so like almost frustrated. It's like, okay, fine. I'm just going to click this link and I'm going <laughs> to read, read about what this guy has to say about, you know, wheat germ extract. And then it was obviously hated, uh, talk of it product. And I was like, wow, I was so fascinated. Like this guy actually made a weed germ extract product. Like it was like the only thing on the market. And you know, everywhere else that you looked, there was like <clears throat> all the other vitamin E products were um, high in the PUFA and, and the oils and stuff and the extra calories. And I didn't want that. And I specifically wanted the weed germ because that is what uh, Vince Joanna talked about. Um, so since discovering the form, I was like, okay, this is some good information. I'm just going to hang out a bit and, you know, learn some more things like this hated guy <laughs> seemed to know what he's talking about. So I'm going to see how much I can learn from this guy. Um, so yeah, I was just lurking for a while, um, reading as much as I can, learning stuff, doing my own research, um, growing. And then I was on this conflict between the low carb stuff and the high carb stuff. And I was like, okay, all this stuff that Ray Pete is talking about makes so much sense, but Pete doesn't exercise. Like what, am I, <laughs> what is going on here? Like, can you even build muscle? Like if you're not eating starches or, you know, on fruit, because you never hear like of a bodybuilder, you know, I'm eating just fruit and milk and I'm building all this muscle. So I was in this conflict of like, what should I be doing? And I, I was just, you know, kept on researching and I decided like, okay, fine. I'm going to have to experiment to see what, if it, if it's going to work because all these health benefits that Pete is talking about made so much change to me. So um, I guess that's where it all started. And it was just, um, you know, from there, I just kept on doing more research and more experimentation. And yeah, I guess this is where we are today. That's awesome. That's that's kind of a funny story. Um, yeah. yeah. And if people don't know who Haidut is, he's uh, Georgie Dinkoff. Uh, and I think his uh, website right now is haidut.me, if you guys want to visit his stuff. And he also has stuff on the repeat form. But yeah, Tokovit, uh, it's the only vitamin E that I use. Do you still use it? 
Yeah, man. I, if I um, order from Idea Labs, it will be talk of it. But sometimes, you know, if people ask me, like, what vitamin E do, can they buy for, from example, uh, someplace else, not Idea Labs, then I would always recommend something else. But uh, talk of it would always be my first recommendation. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it seems closest to what was being used in the research that shows the most benefit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's that's a cool origin story. It's it's kind of similar to mine. I before I was into health or anything. Well, I, I had to lose a lot of weight when I was younger, but that's still you know I was still kind of sick after losing that weight, and I kind of got into exercising because that's what all the kids my age were doing. You know, they're all into sports and stuff, and that got me into like looking up information on like how to gain muscle and do that. And I ended up on those bodybuilding forums or the strongman forums. You know, and I I think yeah. got exposed to a lot of that same information. And then I started working in the supplement world myself. Um, and I got really deep into that. Uh, I was never huge on supplements, but I was always intrigued by herbs, um, less synthetic stuff, uh, even yeah. though I, I think it has some application. Um, but yes, a similar journey for sure. Uh, I definitely was just reading the repeat forum for years before I joined, <laughs> before I felt like I had anything to say. I felt like I was <laughs> learning. Yeah. yeah, same man, same. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so let, let's kind of talk about your articles a little bit before we get into the specifics. You you write some really good articles on your website, which is men, M-E-N, and then that's considered a dash, right? Uh, dash elite e l i t e dot com and people can find your articles there can you kind of give us a short overview about the stuff you kind of the stuff you write about okay so it's basically i try to scratch my own itch so it's because i'm interested in health and bodybuilding and androgens but also um, you know the cognition everything i tried to write about all those subjects and how how I can improve myself to be the optimal human being in terms. So I don't want to be only healthy. I want to be the best in my sport that I can be. For example, I want to have the best sleep. I want to have optimal uh, recovery, optimal energy. I want to, each time I go to the gym, I, I feel stronger. I can progress. Um, so, you know, you have to uh, do everything right in order to achieve that kind of, health and that is what is motivating me to do research on this variety of topics um, so I don't focus just on androgens or just on the mindset or you know on the neurotransmitters or just on exercise um, all those all those things are integrated um, so so you know there's a lot of websites that try to look at only one aspect like only the androgens but you, you can't separate anything in the body and just isolate it. You have to focus on everything. Like what I'm realizing with doing all this research about the gut is that a lot of people might look at mental disorders and they go on SRI drugs or, you know, anti-anxiety medication, but they never address their gut issues and they never really resolve their issues. So everything is so integrated. So you have to look at everything as a whole and try to solve this puzzle. And, and I guess that is how... You, you will get the best permanent long-lasting results because at the end of the day, I want to rely only on my lifestyle, my diet. I'm not also, like similar to you, I'm not big on supplements or experimenting. I yeah. prefer to, to use a minimal amount of supplements, just rely on the diet and stuff. But obviously on a healing journey, 
supplements are very valuable. They can speed up recovery. Or if you use a small amount of supplements, they can help you maintain uh, a higher level of health and, and so on. Nice. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I have this like repertoire of supplements and I have uh, this basically file that I made all their applications, contraindications, stuff like that. Now there's a lot of stuff on the website like examine.com that do that for you. But I like to have that even if you're not using that supplement, you know, because it's like, how about if you end up in a situation where you need it? So about it, even if you don't agree with using it every day or you know, because yeah. I feel like some people will recognize a supplement and its benefits and start taking it immediately, even if they don't need it. I don't really do that. I just have it on the side if I know yeah. someone who needs it or if I need it. <laughs> but experimenting is great. I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing that at all. I think that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. How we learn. I've yeah, I've also seen like so many people they like to just take a supplement because of its supposed health benefits, and then at the end of the day, someone's like using ten to twenty supplements. You're saying like, well, I don't feel any different. And it's like, oh, all right. So why are you using all those supplements? Like you can just quit everything because you don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of like my philosophy. What you, you should just use the one supplements that's actually making a difference. That you can actually feel or actually see improvements and just use one. Like for example, vitamin K. It's amazing for bone and so on. But if you don't have a specific condition or if you don't feel anything specific from it and you're using it, like, why are you using it? There is not really that much of a, of a purpose, you know, if you're not really benefiting from it. Right. Or if you feel like you need it, you might be better off getting it from food like liver, where it gives you a whole host of other nutrients and actually feeds you. I just feel like people spend a lot of money on supplements and then um, kind of put food to the side. Like, I, I say put that effort towards attaining the best food that you can, the highest quality and then fill any gaps that you can't fill with food with supplements. Or if you're trying to recover from something, you know, then you might need some targeted supplements. Yeah, for sure. Diets always first. So now that we're talking about supplements, I, I kind of don't like to uh, bulk in supplements with herbs and stuff like that because I feel like they have a more uh, almost food-like effect, functional food-like effect on the body instead of like an iso isolated amino acid or something like that. Um, so let's get into nigella sativa or black cumin seed. I, I see you um, talking about that a lot. And I actually thought I was going to be met with a lot of resistance when I posted about it. Uh, I hadn't found it yet. Um, and I posted about it on the repeat forum because I was like, okay, this is a PUFA technically, but I've also seen research that it's used to stabilize things like sunflower oil. So it actually works kind of like vitamin E. And whenever I take it, I feel like I drank raw milk or coffee or something. I feel a boost from it. And then my sinuses clear up. Um, and then being from the Middle East, we use it on our culinary uh, dishes a lot, like pastries and stuff like that. And I've always consumed it as the, the seed, sometimes the oil. But culturally, we don't really use the oil that much. We use the seed mainly. And when I looked on examine.com, which kind of reviews a lot of supplements, it shows its efficacy at culinary doses. So you don't need to mega dose it by any means. Uh, can yeah. you give us more information on that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so actually, I saw your, your um, you know, the one, that, that uh, thread you created in the rapid form. And yeah. I guess that was also what uh, picked my interest. And oh, cool. there was another thread. Yeah, there was another thread on um, the, the, uh, the seed that promotes the thyroid function. 
and I think, uh, and also because I heard that there was this strong known inside the seat and that really got my interest so time you know Aquino. then i decided to yeah yeah time Aquino. so i decided to look more deeply into it like what is the seat all about and then it just seemed to have so many benefits like you know you get a lot of herbs and you go to pubmed and you search just one herb and they usually list like 20 benefits but then if you take the herb, you don't really feel anything. It's not that potent of an effect. For example, if you if you take something, uh, what would be a good example? I, okay, I can't think of a good example. But if you take something that is natural, that's supposedly antihistamine, and you take it, but you don't really feel it. But now you take the black cumin, and it's more powerful antihistamine, and your sinus go open immediately from taking it. You know, it's powerful. So... One thing that I really like about this black human is that it's definitely powerful. And this got a lot of human research as well that look into it. And um, it's so interesting that you need a small amount of it. Like initially, before I really start digging deep into the dosages that's needed, I was thinking like, okay, maybe you can take, you know, two, table, two teaspoons per day and you can get this dose uh, dependent response. But then this one study uh, looked specifically on gut bacteria and so on. And it was like this two gram dose seemed optimal and it was better than the one gram and the three gram dose. So um, a lot of research came back to this kind of like two gram dose being uh, optimal for a lot of things. And you don't have to take large doses like you mentioned because it's so strong. So just using a small amount, you automatically limit the amount of PUFA that you're consuming in any way. Um, so like, I, I like the idea of taking the seed because there's a lot of you know, research where they isolate something and it doesn't work as well as a whole food um, because there's a lot of ingredients in food that work synergistically together. And if you isolate something, it doesn't work nearly as well. So for example, the thymoquinone, yes, it like that one specifically has been researched a lot and I've shown a lot of health benefits. So maybe taking the thymoconone on its own might be very beneficial for certain conditions, but I still think that in some conditions, taking the seed might be better because it's the whole food. And I, always, I would always prefer to use the whole food unless you have a specific condition and you want to really up the dose of something. For example, if you look at vitamin K2, the MK4 version, they use it with uh, vitamin C in cancer, and they use like up to 800 milligrams in a single dose with the vitamin C, which is really like a massive dose acutely. And like, if you want to treat a specific condition, yes, then a mega dose might be beneficial. But you know, on average, if you want to uh, fix a small condition, then smaller doses in the whole food is uh, preferential, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I see a lot of um, anecdotal things on YouTube and stuff like that of people, you know, I'm not claiming that it does this, but like reversing cancers and stuff on the stuff. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, I didn't know that you're inspired by my forum post. That's pretty cool. I thought you we just happened to both write about it. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw your, yours first. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Cool. Well, I'm glad you decided to write about it. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's amazing that you so did you personally experience um, well, the, the main benefits that I'm experiencing is like, I find that 
your health improves slowly. So since taking it, like there's a lot of overlapping factors, like we recently moved. So we're out of a stressful situation. Um, I can maybe say my diet has improved a little bit. Like mm-hmm. in the last couple of months, I have eliminated starches. So my gut inflammation is also reducing significantly. So there might be a few overlapping factors, but since using it, I have noticed like I'm, I'm slightly warmer when I take it. My eyesight is really like uh, improving uh, from like a month ago, um, which I would say is due to better gut health specifically. And also I'm having more bowel movements during the day while not being more active, because if you're active, that's one of the best ways to stimulate uh, faster transit time and more bowel movements during the day. And I also feel that when someone have, or I had gut inflammation, I would have less bowel movements. So since eliminating the starches, I had more frequent bowel movements, but with adding in the black cumin, I have even faster transit time. And, you know, this is like maybe an uncomfortable topic, but I really like to focus on like the gut health. And because I feel that my gut will say a lot of things about the rest of my health. And since I have really cleared up gut inflammation and so on, I've experienced a lot of improvements. Like since uh, when I was still eating a lot of starches, I had uh, psoriasis or at least like rash in my beard and on my head and stuff. And since eliminating the starches that have cleared up significantly, and I think like, you know, that's why I say it's a lot of overlapping factors. So it could be just because I've limited starches, or it can also be because I add it in the black human, but all of those, um, you know, the rash and everything just went away, which is possible that it's the black human because it's so powerful, uh, anti-inflammatory and also antibacterial, antifungal, antiparasitic, antibiofilm. It's just, you know, pretty amazing if you want to use it for the gut cells specifically. I, I really like um, oregano oil too. Um, and I feel like the black seed is very powerful, almost like oregano oil, but at lower dosages, because with oregano oil, you obviously have to concentrate the essential oil, where with black seed, like you said, at a lower dose, it's effective. So that that's cool to hear. Um, and I think Ray, I don't remember his exact quote, but Ray Pete was asked about black seed and he didn't bash it by any means. And I thought he was going to be pretty harsh on the PUFA aspect of it, but but he seemed to be somewhat in favor of it. I think he was on the one radio network interview that he did, and they were even talking about possibly rubbing it, the oil, on the thyroid region, and people kind of like getting a boost from that. I've never tried yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that, but I yeah, like you said, he didn't bash it, but I felt that he didn't feel maybe it was necessary you know, he, he was kind of like on the fence about it, but I think right. he would acknowledge that he does have like benefits due to the thymoconone. Right. I didn't expect him to be crazy about it because I know if it has PUFA, he's never going to be like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I always feel like Pete's just like, you just, you just need milk and orange juice and that's <laughs> all you need. Like you don't need the black human, just stick to this diet. <laughs> Yeah, I I do like his minimalist approach because I think he makes things easy for people and and his underlying concepts, if you understand that, you can get out of that realm of restrictive foods and kind of understand Pete's philosophies and, you know, structure your life around that to where, you know, you're not on a strict orange juice and milk and oyster (laughs) diet, but you understand, you understand the concepts, you you get why the guy does what he does. Um, Yeah, for sure. 
Oh, I was going to ask you something uh, while you were speaking. You said something interesting, but uh, oh, the the effects um, that might be uh, kind of overlapping with you eliminating starch and the, introducing the black seed and getting away from a stressful situation. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. But the effects that you're describing, I get the same effects from the seed. So <laughs> I think there yeah, is a that's... little something going on. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I, I luckily got like a massive container of it, so it's probably going to last me a few months. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the seed or the oil? Yeah, the powder. Oh, the powder. Okay, I see. Cool. Yeah, I, you know, growing up, we would just sprinkle the seed on a spoonful of honey. And the one thing that I noticed when I do that is that sometimes your throat will get a little agitated from the strength of the compounds in there. And with the honey helps to kind of soothe the esophagus. So if you ever get that issue, because I chew the seeds, I masticate them in my mouth to release some of those compounds. And um, I find that if I don't take it with honey, it's a little harsh on my esophagus. But maybe it's doing a good thing. I don't know. And that's uh, interesting. I, yeah, mm -hmm. sorry. No, go yeah, ahead. I'm definitely gonna try that out uh, because the thymoconone tends to be very sensitive to heat and light. So I think that you know the processing in the in the process of making the powder or or you know any kind of processing might affect the the thymoconone content. And it's really interesting that I've really heard a, a, quite a few testimonials of people that have experienced like very potent benefits from chewing the seed versus taking taking the powder or something like that. So I think my next experiment with the black cumin might be getting the whole seed with the honey. So that's a good idea. Thanks for that. I think I'm going to try that out. Yeah, I think it's kind of like garlic, you know, you can hold a clove of garlic in your mouth and it's not too crazy, but then you start chewing it and it's just intense, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I feel the same way about the seed. Um, by the way, I don't sell the seed or anything. We're talking a lot about it, but this is just out of like curiosity and, you know, change, exchanging ideas. So if anybody's like, oh, I bet you sell the stuff. I do not. <laughs> I do not sell the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I, I kind of want to talk to you about starch a little bit because I do read about uh, you getting off of it and feeling really good. And just recently, uh, there's been a forum uh, thread on people benefiting on psoriasis uh, through eating raw starch or resistant starch. W why do you think that that's happening? Do you think it is because of what they're claiming is that it's feeding the uh, beneficial microbiota or the microbes in the gut and displacing the pathogenic ones? What do you think about that? Well, honestly... I, I think it's, first of all, very individual. Um, I myself, like, okay, let's, let's rewind back to the starch. Um, the starch I was mainly consuming was potatoes. So I do acknowledge that it is a nightshade. So I could also be sensitive to nightshade and not mm. as much to the starches. Because also when I had Tabasco sauce, um, which is chilies, that's also part of the nightshade family, and I get like serious rash when I, when I have um, Tabasco too frequently. So I have eliminated that and that has also helped a lot. So it could be the, the, the nightshade and the lectins that is causing an issue for me. However, I have also found that if I eat uh, white rice too frequently, I might start to feel slightly not as optimal. So I, I think, you know, I have a lesser sensitivity or at least had a lesser sensitivity to, to starches, but a, a greater sensitivity to lectins and nightshade. Um, so one thing I wanted to mention was that 
you know, back to elimination diet real quick, is that a lot of people think like, okay, I have to go on an elimination diet and I might have to do it indefinitely, which is not the case because I have found that once I've eliminated the, the things that caused the issues for me, I could like after a few weeks, I could have something and I tolerate it very well. So once your immune system calms down and your gut starts to heal and, you know, you get out of a stressful situation and you improve your lifestyle and so on, your digestion improves, your thyroid function improves, and that as a whole helps to you know, your digestion and stuff. So then you might be able to tolerate things again, but there's always that possibility that you remain sensitive to certain foods that you might have to el eliminate, like, for example, foods that is very high in a certain toxin, like lectins, like spe uh, specifically chilies for me. Um, okay, but back to the starches is that, first of all, I think it's very individual. And, you know, the optimal microbiome balance, if I can put it like that, is very debatable. Like, there is no optimal balance. Like, we as humans only have one-third uh, similarities between each other. Like two thirds of your microbiome is unique to you, so it, it's very hard to say like this is good and this is bad. And um, like even supposedly good bacteria can become an issue if it's in if it's present in too high amounts. So the resistance starts like I think it comes down to about three main um, points if you want to optimize your gut health. And first, it is eliminate the problematic foods, which will help to reduce the inflammation. And when inflammation goes down, then your organs can start to work normally again. Like, for example, your thyroid. Your thyroid can pick up again your thymus and your spleen and your liver and your kidneys. Those organs are affected by gut inflammation, endotoxins, and you know that immune response because of inflammation in the gut. And once those organs start to work better again, your gut as a result will also start to work better because when your gut starts to work better, you have better digestion, you have faster transit time and so on. Um, so now I went on an, off on a tangent. <laughs> no, you're doing good. Um, well, you were talking so, about the starches and I think you were leading into the the question I asked about the raw starches or the resistant starch helping people, and you're saying how it's individualized. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was on that three points. So, okay, the first one was eliminating the problematic foods that's causing the inflammation. The second one is optimizing digestion. And when I look at, uh, because I work with a lot of clients with gut issues, and when I look at their stool tests, you know, they have a lot of inflammation. They might have an excess of bacteria that's fermenting on the amino acids that's creating an excess of ammonia and urea and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, why is that? Okay, because your protein is reaching, it, it, you know, it's not digesting properly. It's not being absorbed quickly enough. And then it's traveling down into the end of the small intestine, into the colon, where those bacteria is going to ferment on your amino acids. So you're basically giving amino acids and fuel for the bad bacteria. So it's not that the food is the problem, your digestion is a problem. So if you fix the digestion, you're, you're not going to feed those bad bacteria. And then thirdly would be faster transit time. And I know Ray Peters also talked about this, like the example of parrots, they have a very fast transit time. And as a result, they are very healthy and they have a long uh, lifespan. So there is research that look into transit time. And, you know, there's a lot of research in people that say microbiome, uh, microbiome 
diversity is a good thing. But actually, people with a slower transit time have higher diversity. And when you have slower transit time, you actually have you know, a bigger risk of getting SIBO, bacterial overgrowth, uh, leaky gut, and more inflammation. So if you have proper thyroid function, your transit time will be faster and you will, as a result, have less inflammation. So again, the three points would be eliminating the problematic foods, optimizing digestion, and speeding up the transit time. So coming back to the, the, the starches and stuff that they're having, first of all, I think they're eliminating the problematic food. For example, it's protein. A lot of people have problem with protein. And that is because protein is difficult to digest. You need a lot of stomach acid to digest the protein properly. And a lot of people maybe don't have enough stomach acid. They don't have the thyroid function to optimize their stomach acid secretion. So then, you know, that undigested meat is traveling down into the colon, and that's why they have that rotting going on in the colon. So it's not, in my opinion, you know, they want to cut out the meat and say meat is bad, but it's actually the digestion that needs to improve and not eliminating the meat. Well, some people might perhaps genetically do better on a lower protein diet because for some reason, even if they have good thyroid function, their digestion might still not be optimal, then, you know, that's fine. But I think that having, you know, eliminating problematic food is just also another short-term um, method of fixing something. Like, like I, I don't know if you're uh, referring to that specific thread, um, but, you know, they, they're still eliminating something in order to achieve something else. So that in that, in my opinion, is not really resolving your health issues. It's just eliminating the problematic food, waiting for the elimination, the inflammation to go down. And then, you know, your organ f function will improve, your digestion will improve as a result, and then you will be able to tolerate food better. So I wanted to add something like, since eliminating the, the starches and really focusing on my gut health, I always had like this deep... Um, what should I say, like, like cuts, like crevices on my tongue. And that is obviously, according to Chinese medicine, uh, your organs is not working optimally, depending on where the cracks and the marks are and so on. And since really focusing on my uh, digestion, since eliminating the starches and stuff, my bowel health has improved significantly and those marks have gone away. So... Um, as my health is improving, like I mentioned, my digestion is improving, my transit time is improving, and I will be able to tolerate the different foods better. So what my take on, you know, the, the, the starches, having more starches is still an elimination diet. And it, it's just something that works for them and it's good. I'm happy for them. But in my opinion, it's still not a long-term solution in what you want to achieve. It's just another means of achieving something. But you have to realize that, you know, that's, that's still not something that's balanced. But if it's going to help them, you know, improve their health, then go for it. Um, yeah, that's my take on it. Nice. Yeah, I like that. The, I like that you expanded on the putrefaction that can happen if you don't, you know, have proper stomach acid. Um, but not only that, if you don't have proper stomach acid, you're also not really able to utilize some minerals. Um, or break down protein completely, right? Like we were talking about. So those can have really negative effects. Um, so when you're doing like an elimination diet and let's say you go vegan or vegetarian, you're consuming less meat, 
all of a sudden you think meat is the problem, but you haven't fixed maybe your hypothyroidism or subclinical hypothyroidism, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, so. I've also uh, written a message on the forum that basically like people fix their gut issues either on a fruitarian diet or on a carnivore diet. It's like mm. all these different means of achieving the same goal it's just by re- you know, eliminating a certain problematic food for you and lowering the inflammation, improving your health. And like you mentioned, like if your digestion is not optimal, you will not be able to break down that protein. You will not be able to utilize the minerals, but also the amino acids. And I think that's, that's one big reason why people struggle to build muscle is because they uh, are not absorbing those amino acids and those minerals and vitamins sufficiently. So their body is still in a somewhat of a starved state. The inflammatory starved state. Yeah, I got kind of mocked for talking, saying, you know, I'm kind of warning that persorption might not be a good thing, which persorption can happen of starch particulates or particles into the bloodstream affecting like arterial function. And I also was, uh, I think, warning on the metabolism, how if your metabolism isn't where it should be, um, you might want to address that. And I think that's overstated on the repeat forum. Everyone's like, fix your metabolism, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think under that umbrella lies so many of the problems that people are experiencing. And if the temperature and the pulse aren't on point, I personally think that that should be a priority uh, before taking avenues of experimentation that go against um, I believe the teachings of Ray Pete, because as I mentioned, that's the forum's topic kind of is Ray Pete. So I naturally follow uh, what I believe to be the correct view of physiology. Uh, and then if that doesn't work out, then I venture out into those areas that are like very like experimental or even go highly against some of the warnings of Ray Pete. Not to say that he's some authority. I'm sure he would hate to be an authority figure of any sort. I just merely do it because I agree with so many of his articles and books and my 10 years of research before finding repeat. Yeah, totally agree. Um, in, in terms of just to come back to your exposure to, you know, repeat and the repeat forum, did you have any issues that you found were relieved? Um, of course, you just expanded on eliminating starch helping you, but did you find any more benefit in following some of those principles? like the repeat principles, stuff that we talk about on the forum? Yeah. Um, well, honestly, like I should say that I was in relatively good health when I discovered repeat's work. And I've always somehow, so, somewhat being in a good state of health, I've always had good energy. Um, I was able to build strength well. I was able to add muscle sufficiently. Um, so, and I was basically already doing what he was, what he was saying. Uh, I was enjoying milk. I was enjoying fruit. I was, I think like for me, it was just realizing like Bufa was bad and that it can cause inflammation and also like raw vegetables. Like a lot of people are indoctrinated, or at least I was indoctrinated with vegetables are good. You know, you need the fiber, you need some specific <laughs> micronutrient from a vegetable, which is not the case because you can get almost everything from meat and organ meat. So in, in my experience, it was just realizing like specifically raw vegetables can be an issue and you should be much more uh, aware 
of how foods are or um, can be problematic to the body. And here are a list of foods or, you know, if it's raw food or something like that, that can be an issue. So in terms of uh, some of his principles like lao pufa, I was, I was already eating lao pufa because I wasn't having any um, nuts and seeds or vegetable oils or anything like that. I was already enjoying milk, so I was having a lot of calcium in my diet. Um, I was never really low carb until I was a little bit brainwashed by Vince Gerona stuff. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's already a few years ago, but I, I can't say that I have noticed anything specific from following his principles. Um, it's only since I've gone through some stressful periods in my life that my life has, uh, my health has started to deteriorate. And then focusing on, you know, getting enough protein, getting enough calories, getting enough carbs, focusing on saturated fat and salt and so on, that I have been able to restore my health, getting the necessary micronutrients, um, focusing on the calcium to phosphorus ratio, those kind of stuff. Um, so I, I would rather say that I think his principles have helped me to regenerate better and faster and more completely from a stressful period that I've gone through in my life instead of from where I were when I was younger. So I think just overall better regeneration recovery from that stressful period and now just being able to maintain great health as I get older, because I think a lot of people also, you know, you, you feel a certain way in your teens, in your early 20s, where you're so full of energy and you, you don't have like pain <laughs> or anything. And as you get older, you know, you start to experience stiffness and stuff like that. So I think just being able to maintain that youthful state is really um, quite an achievement if you can do that. And I, I would say like his principles are helping me to achieve a, a very youthful state. Yeah, nice. I, I feel the same way. I feel like you know, understanding Pete's principles kind of fixed a few little things for me. But one of the reasons why I thought Ray Pete was right and still do is because I had reached so many of the same conclusions myself before finding him that he basically reaffirmed a lot of it and then connected the dots and filled in the gaps. So yeah. uh, I was researching low carb because it's so big, you know, the keto diet and everything for so long but I never adhered to it because I saw big gaps. I was concerned with thyroid issues. So I never let go of fruit. I never let go of honey. Um, I, I was a vegan for a while, but then that was more so because I realized the horrible conditions in feedlots and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, until I can find good animal foods, I'm, I don't think I'm going to eat them. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, and I think for me, like my temperatures increased and so did my pulse rate. So I definitely filled in a metabolic gap, I believe. Um, and it resolved some things for me, uh, like skin issues that had been lingering almost because my body wasn't properly metabolizing. It seemed to be like stuck in the state where it couldn't fully regenerate. And yeah. once I bridged that gap, stopped restricting because I was still fasting a considerable amount, even though I still fast, which I kind of want to get into with you. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. I feel like some people find Pete after they've been restricting for so long 
And then they see this nice uh, uh, return to health because they're no longer restricting anything. They're not on a low-carb, low-calorie fasting diet while doing high-intense exercise six days a week, you know? Yeah. Um, so But on that, that note, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, you know, a lot of people take it the, uh, uh, the opposite direction where they have been restricting, but when they come to a peat diet, they're like, okay, so sugar is good saturated fat is good i'm just going to overeat on that and then they <laughs> they gain they gain a crazy amount of weight but right. they, like i think a lot of people like um forget about the importance of protein you know the satiating effects of protein because we talk so uh, he frowns upon the phosphorus so a lot of people's like okay i'm going to limit my protein intake and as a result their temperature are still lower and they are hungrier because protein is helps so much with satiation and then they tend to overeat so much and in my opinion the lack of animal food and organ meat might lead to suboptimal results long term right I, i think you know you're what what needs to be done you're right is that if people you know want to decrease their protein they need to kind of question why they want to decrease their protein because you could still consume animal products and mitigate some of the things that are quote-unquote harmful, like some of the inflammatory amino acids, the iron and the phosphate, those things can all be adjusted with dairy intake, with coffee intake around those times. So you can still consume nutrient-dense, protein-rich foods, but you can utilize some things to mitigate the uh, problematic compounds that might be in it and maybe have more glycine or, you know, bone broth or gelatin. Yeah, and... I've just like a few, I think a few weeks ago, I wrote an article about it's actually such a small amount of meat that you actually need to to um, satisfy some of the requirements, for example, like taurine and for hydroxyproline and some of those uh, beneficial amino acids. And also, I think apart from just the muscle meat, because a lot of people look into the muscle meat, but If you can just have an organ meat blend, like of the heart, the liver, and the kidney, and you can just mm-hmm. have like 50 to 100 grams of that daily, you can consume so many micronutrients, far more than you would have gotten through eating muscle meat. And as a result, you can still limit the methionine and the phosphorus and the iron just because you're having such nutrient-dense organ meat. You can have a very small amount of it to meet your requirements. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I'm glad you said that. I I was a big fan of Weston A. Price before I found Ray Pete, and I still like their concepts. And Sally Fallon um, kind of you know talks on their behalf a lot and has the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, and she wrote a book called Nourishing Diets, I believe, and she gets into all of the ways cultures around the world would incorporate different variations of organ meats and animal foods in specific quantities and ratios to feed a pregnant woman or somebody who's just got done being pregnant like they had a combination a chemistry of animal foods for whatever um was ailing them or whatever they were going through and i think that's because animal foods are just very reliable nutrition yeah that's very interesting yeah i definitely recommend that book to you and people listening nourishing diets is very fascinating um <clears throat> so when it comes to like fasting what are, what are your views on fasting do you practice it and where do you think the context lies no i do not practice it um 
I used to do some intermittent fasting when I was still in university. And I thought it was amazing because I was all shredded uh, and <laughs> I was looking good and I, I was feeling good. But honestly, it all came down to I was eating in a deficit and I was still young. So I was, you know, I was in that state where I was doing more harm than good, where everyone on the forum talks about, you know, running on the stress hormones and stuff like that. So I was abusing my youth while under eating and it was definitely not something that was sustainable. So I was doing that about for, I think it was like three months and then it was vacation. I went back home and I quit the intermittent fasting because of family They were eating breakfast and so on. So I just started eating breakfast again. Um, and then like, I think a few years later, I, I tried intermittent fasting again, but I just couldn't do it. Um, yeah. I was like so hungry in the morning. I felt, <laughs> yeah. I felt like skinny fats. I couldn't lose weight. I was eating like 2000 calories per day and I was, um, doing like, a, uh, you know, the warrior, I think it's the warrior diet where you fast like 20 to 23 hours. And it felt like I couldn't build muscle. I couldn't lose the fat. It, something was just wrong. And but I was also in a stressful situation. So I think if you want to fast, you know, that is additional stress. So if you have stress in your life, don't add extra stress. Um, so I think that was something I did wrong. But regardless, even if I am in a non-stressful situation, I would not willingly do fasting. But just the other day, um, it was just like Saturday. I was like both my wife and I, for some reason, we had like no appetite. <laughs> And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go with it. Um, we had some coffee. We wouldn't do intermittent fasting. We were just having some coffee with cream. So it was very low calories for, for about the whole day until we had something to eat for dinner. And I feel that if your body is okay with, you know, it, it doesn't have appetite, then you can go with it. But if your body tells you like, I'm hungry right now and I'm going to give you a stress reaction if you don't eat, then you're inducing unnecessary stress on yourself. But there are, there have been, you know, longer term studies that have been studied that I, you know, you, you can't ignore the benefits. There has been a lot of benefits and people, uh, especially when it comes to the gut, they have very sensitive and by eliminating all foods really help them to resensitize their gut and also the immune system. But I still do not think that fasting is the cure or fixes the root condition because I've heard so many testimonials of people that, you know, they do the fasting, they get tremendous benefit. And after a few weeks or months, all their symptoms are back. So obviously fasting is not addressing the root cause. And, you know, if you can give your body a break from inflammation, I think that's great. But in my opinion, you don't have to fast intermittent fasting or fasting to get um, life extension benefits. Like there's also a lot of research that shows that if you just eliminate methionine or you limit iron or specific um, harmful compounds in the diet like polyunsaturated fatty acids or you, you, you limit gut inflammation, you also get that life extension benefit because inflammation will inhibit proper cellular function. It will inhibit, uh, you know, uh, autophagy. And you need proper thyroid function for autophagy to work. So your cells actually need to be in, in an energized state in order to perform their necessary functions. So 
so my approach would be, and I, I think Pete might feel similar, is that, you know, eliminate all the things that is causing stress and inflammation in your life and optimize your metabolism, your thyroid, your temperature, and so on. And that, as a result, will take care of all the autophagy and you will get the necessary regeneration from going that route. So I would focus on that instead of doing the fasting because I think one of the, the, the great benefits of fasting is because when you fast, your body creates its own water, like especially dry fasting appear to have uh, greater benefits uh, than like a water fast because your body creates its own um, deuterium. Oh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, deuterium. <laughs> deuterium. Uh, free water. And then as a result, your body can also, um, you know, lower inflammation at a much faster rate. Um, so there are benefits to, to fasting. I do acknowledge that, but I do not think that it's addressing the root cause and that's not a route I would go. I don't want to induce a, a additional stress on myself if that's not going to address the root cause. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's that's the context we need for fasting, I think. If anybody wants to engage in fasting, I think taking what Hans said to heart is a really good idea because though that fasting can have benefits and I personally fast and I can't, I'll kind of get into that in a second here. I think meeting these prerequisites is really important because <clears throat> coming from the standard American diet, the amount of stress that's in there, probably the amount of liver damage and thyroid damage that somebody might have already caused, fasting, though it can have benefit, is not really going to teach the philosophies that somebody needs to learn in order to live their everyday life when you're not fasting. Like you said, people can get temporary relief from inflammation and other maladies while they're fasting. But if they don't change those lifestyle habits that cause those issues, it will just return. <laughs> just like when yeah. you know you take antibiotics, things might improve for a little bit. But then if you keep eating those problematic foods that cause endotoxin and you still have bad digestion, things are just going to come back. Pathogenic, you know, uh, the endotoxin causing bacteria are still going to come back. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I practice dry fasting. I'm glad that you talked about that uh, a couple times a week, sometimes one time a week. Um, and I used to do 23-hour fasts. I don't know if you know Noon Amin-Ra, but I found him years ago. He kind of blew up on the internet. This was before I found Ray Pete, um, or at least before I got into Ray Pete. I had heard of Ray Pete in the past, but kind of dismissed it a little bit. Um, and I was doing 23-hour fast because I felt so good from the fasting I was doing previously that I was like, well, more must be better, right? <laughs> and I was yeah. also vegan. <laughs> uh, so being yeah. a vegan, this guy was basically on a 23-hour fast and one-hour supplement diet. <laughs> so he basically got all of his nutrients from a supplement smoothie. And I always felt like inherently wrong about that. So I always was trying to modify it. And I found out that the best modification for a 23-hour vegan fast was to eat meat during that one hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt like that was the only way to make this thing sustainable, at which point I stopped being vegan and at which point I stopped fasting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and then I also read a book by Lear Keith. It's called um, The Vegetarian Myth. It's a really good book for those people who you know, might still be stuck considering what's right and what's wrong. 
uh, in terms of, you know, veganism or the ethics of it or the environmental impact of it or all the reasons that people give. But sorry, I'm going to make a note of that. Is what, what was that book? The Vegetarian Myth. Yeah, by Lear Keith. It's a, she's oh, a lady. So. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, yeah, I highly suggest that. Um, uh, but anyway, so I, I found Ray Pete, and one of the first things that I really, when I got into him, I was listening, he said, if somebody has a proper metabolism, they can actually get away with one meal a day. And that came out of his mouth. But then I was seeing so many people on the forum and stuff say, you know, never fast, never go without eating, always eat every few hours and stuff like that. And I think coming out of a stress state, that's great advice. But I feel really good from a dry fast once or twice a week. I feel like it get, resets my gut, decreases that inflammation. And since I'm already eating, you know, high quality, quote unquote, PD foods around that fast, I feel like they work really well together. And recently, uh, Hi Dude and, or I mean, sorry, Georgie Dinkoff and Danny were actually talking about <laughs> yeah. the potential benefits of stopping eating, at least partially, not completely. This is very seldomly. And uh, I felt like those benefits really worked. Like you were talking about the deuterium depleted water that's produced through, I think, beta oxidation. Yeah. And, and also the minerals are being preserved. I would never water fast. I felt the worst I've ever felt on water fasting. I hate water fasting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, the dry fasting, though, I feel relaxed. I feel mentally super clear. And my body, it's almost like it knows that it's not getting anything. So it initiates everything properly instead of getting water and being confused. It's like, are we eating? Are we not eating? And the uh, minerals, I think, spare lean tissue because Ray P talks about if any fasting is going to be done, that consuming some of the alkaline minerals is actually lean tissue muscle sparing so that yeah, you don't go deep that. into, yeah, deep into catabolism. So, um, it, there's a forum member, I think his name is L. Light, and he has a lot of good stuff on the benefits of uh, dry fasting, too. Um, but I just want people to understand that this is in context. This doesn't mean that your life should be taken over by dry fasting. Once your temperatures and pulse are good and you have some issues, you might possibly want to try incorporating it like once a week and see how you feel. And I only do it intermittent. It's not even 24 hours. So yeah. I don't even think we're tapping into a lot of the dangerous aspects of fasting but anyway yeah. that's that's just for my experience i just wanted to share that with you yeah and just for interest sake like i had a look at the amount of water that was produced um, the difference between the fat and the glucose oxidation and it turns out that fat oxidation creates twice the amount of water than glucose so i was i was thinking to myself like okay i'm gonna bioact this and just eat like a ton of carbohydrates and just burn it you know, and create all the beneficial water. But it turns out that, yeah, fats are, uh, you know, much better at creating uh, water than glucose. So dry fasting specifically make a lot of sense if you quickly detoxify a lot of stuff from your body. Yeah, I, I think, sorry, repeat what you said in the beginning. You said you were looking into how fast um, uh, fat metabolism or, or how much more water fat metabolism produces, right? That's what you said? Yeah, yeah, I was looking at the difference between fat and glucose and, uh, and the amount of water that produce, fat produced twice as much of, the, of that, that beneficial water than glucose oxidation. And if you're you know, in a rested state, you are automatically going to, to be burning 
more uh, fat than glucose regardless of your diet so you know yeah that was just something interesting that i that i read so um, dry fasting definitely a lot of benefits uh, when it comes to burning the right kind of fat and creating right. that much water yeah I, I, I i'm glad you said the right kind of fat because it can be a bit dangerous if you're you know just full of polyunsaturated fatty acids from a lifetime of consuming it um, and they're stored <laughs> and then you're just liberating yeah. that you, you could have some pretty negative reactions. So it might be good to prerequisite any fasting that you do with kind of using vitamin E and switching to more saturated fat to kind of saturate your tissues and eliminate the PUFA, which can take years um, before maybe engaging in some extreme fasting or anything like that. Do you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, j- just the last thought on it is that, you know, like I mentioned when my body tells me like I don't have an appetite, then I, you know, I would go with that. Um, so I think if someone wants to do a dry fast, they should just make sure that it's going to be on a day that they know they're going to have low stress because stress really increases caloric requirements, and you don't want to push, uh, uh, put unnecessary stress on your body while you're doing something stressful. So if you're going to be in a uh, stress-free environment like you're going out into nature or something like that, then a fasting, like a dry fast, might be a breeze. I think that would be the best time to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because um, the traditionally in the Middle East, when people are fasting for Ramadan, one of the very well-known things is that when you begin to get into an argument or something with someone and you're fasting, you have to stop, say I'm fasting, and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Because, because it amplifies and exaggerates every stressor that you'll come across. So yeah. this is why it's very well known that you want to avoid all conflict during Ramadan, not just spiritually, but also physically, because it's easy to lose control and get really like huffy puffy because your stress <laughs> hormones are already up. And then all of a sudden you're going to get the surge of adrenaline before you know it. Someone's throwing a fist, you know? So. Yeah. And <laughs> there was a thing I read about, I think it was like Chinese medicine that looked at, I think it was, you know, anger and the liver, that anger, feeling the emotion, anger was really harmful to the liver. So uh, yeah, you know, eliminating all stresses, stressors, and especially like anger and frustration is key to improving health, whether you're fasting or not. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And and I'm sure the liver is doing a lot when someone is fasting. So the less you can burden the liver, the better. Yeah, exactly. Can you, talking about the liver, can you kind of get into um, how that plays into thyroid and how we could possibly go into reinforcing the liver and uh, supporting it? Yeah, so my approach would be to start at the gut because a lot of people have gut issues. And, you know, what happens in the gut goes directly to the liver, through the portal vein, uh, right into the liver. Um, so in, in endotoxins, any toxin that's uh, produced in the gut, because it's not just endotoxins, bacteria create a lot of different metabolic byproducts. And your liver have to process it. And if you have leaky gut or inflammation, all those metabolites is going to overload the, the liver. And you know, that's when things start to go south. So my first approach would be to 
look after the gut, make sure you're reducing all your gut inflammation, eliminating all the problematic foods so you can give your liver a rest break. Um, and, yeah, so focusing on easy to digest foods, also very important. Um, then it would be to eliminate stress. I see a lot of people have issues with they feel like they're not storing glycogen. But the matter of fact is that if you have fatty, fatty liver or not, your liver can store the same amount of glycogen. And oh, another okay. misconception I see a lot is that people think they can't store enough glycogen with fruit, um, but they can with starches. Mm. So, we, which is not true. Like fruit is actually much better than than starches at storing the glycogen because there's a synergistic thing going on between the glucose and the fructose and not just at the liver, but actually also at the muscles. I think that's a very big misconception, but I want to focus on the liver. So um, if you just have a fatty liver, your, your liver can still store sufficient glycogen. But the thing is, people are stressed. But, but I should say that um, the worst condition your liver are in the less glycogen it will be able to store. So it's just, it has a reduction in liver function as a whole. So you're not just suffering funds from storing less uh, glycogen. You're also suffering from like uh, insufficient detoxification of toxins. You're, you're suffering from insufficient thyroid hormone activation and stuff like that. So it's not just the glycogen. So when it comes to stress is that people have elevated uh, norepinephrine and that prevents the storage of glycogen and it uh, stimulates the, the usage of the glucose and of glycogen. So if you're in a chronic stress state with elevated norepinephrine, you're going to be using that glycogen very fast. Mm -hmm. So, so, so the, the trick would be to stop the stress and not specifically focusing on storing more glycogen, although um, stress hormones like norepinephrine and serotonin might prevent you from storing that. So, um, lowering those stress hormones, like you can lower norepinephrine with salt, inosine, magnesium, zinc, arcmatine, um, kratom can also lower it, um, but that can you know cause addiction. I don't want someone to depend on something like that. But I also always feel that if I use like arcmatine, that my appetite goes away, which means that you have better uh, energy metabolism. Your stress hormones are lower because arcmatine is great at lowering norepinephrine. So you have more glycogen storage as a whole. But there's also this enzyme, uh, glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta, which you want to inhibit that and, that, and then your body can also store glycogen properly. But first of all, it just comes down to stopping the stress hormones, the, the norepinephrine and the serotonin, and then your body will be able to store it and utilize energy sufficiently but i think it also goes down to a cellular level where you know is your cell creating enough energy does it feel it's in a starved state so and then you know that's a can of worms on its own because you have to look at the electron transport chain at the tca cycle at glycolysis and beta oxidation how does your cellular function look like you know do you have access glycolysis but insufficient tca cycle activity is your cell membrane leaky, creating too much reactive oxygen species, oxidizing the, the lipids and the proteins and stuff? And that's a whole rabbit hole that you can fix by lowering inflammation, cutting out the PUFAs, getting all your micronutrients. And over time, your cellular function would improve. 
and then you will be able to create energy sufficiently if, if you also lower the stress hormones. So back to the liver, um, my approach would be focus on the gut, lowering the inflammation, and then focusing on lowering stress. So stress isn't just elevated because you are in a stressful situation. It can be also because of nutritional deficiencies. And you know, inflammation is a very potent stimulator of cortisol. So if you have inflammation, it, it always comes back to the gut. If you have inflammation from the gut, your cortisol will be elevated. You'll be in a in, in a stressed state. So you know, and apart from just the inflammation, stress is also high because of perceived stress. You know, a lot of people worry about the future because they perceive that as a stressor. They aren't necessarily in a stressful situation, but they stress about something, and that is elevating stress hormones. So it's going to be a multifactorial approach where you have to look at the gut, you have to lower the stress hormones and you have to fix your mindset and stop worrying about things and start living in the now. And then your stress hormones will also go down. And because if you are stressed, you know, that will also inhibit digestion. And as a result, that will create inflammation. So it's always this loop going on between stress, the gut, your mindset and stuff like that. So my approach would be fix the gut, lower the stress, and your liver function will improve. But you can always use supplements on your journey of recovery, like things like tutka. Taurine has been shown to enhance the storage of uh, liver glycogen. Um, there's also um, milk vessels been shown to be great for the liver. Caffeine, vitamin K2. There's quite a few things. Um, I, I had an article about this. I have an article that uh, lists quite a few things that can uh, promote the proper storage of liver glycogen. Great summary. I love that. You, you covered a lot of the good bases and I was even going to ask you some questions and you answered them throughout. So that's great. Um, <laughs> since you said that you have the article, I just want to take a break real quick, remind people that they're listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast. And I'm here with Hans Amato from Men Elite, men-elite.com. And that's where you're going to be able to find these articles, including the article he wrote about liver and liver health and how to promote that. He lists the, the the science that he just did here, along with some of the supplements that can go towards achieving that. And I think that's really important. And as you heard him say, it ties into not only just the liver as an isolated organ, but also the intestines and um, the, well, we talked about transit time and just lowering intestinal inflammation, which then will help the whole body. Um, so please go take a look at that. Go look at his articles, all his other articles on his website. Um, so let's see here. We covered a good amount of stuff. Um, just, just to go back to liver for just one second. Um, do you have any input on the, the one thing that I think is attainable by a lot of people is caffeine. So coffee, do you have any suggestions on how to utilize coffee to improve, uh, liver function? Um, I prefer just to drink coffee because it tastes awesome instead of just taking the supplement. Um, again, I think it comes back to the whole, the whole food, the whole herb plant seed, whatever you're going to be using, using the whole food is superior to using an isolated compound. Um, so I would go with the drinking coffee and research have shown that between about three to five to six cups per day is about, you know, the optimal amount, but obviously there isn't a, a U curve where you start to get side effects from drinking even more than that. 
And a lot of people might get anxiety. So you can add in something like taurine. That's a very frequent supplement that can help to dampen the uh, anxiety. Also, um, taurine has been shown to help ornithine. And um, ornithine is also great because it, it, it assists in ammonia detoxification. So people will feel great and also helps to lower stress. Um, and also Rapid has given a very uh, great tip, which is to have your coffee with cream. So that slows the, 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 the transit time, slows the absorption, and that helps the tolerance with the caffeine. So I think if someone is sensitive to uh, caffeine, they might have some uh, cream with it to help prevent the, the side effects. But again, someone might want to keep an eye on their fat intake because you don't want to take your calories too high, especially your fat, if, because the fat might also overburden the liver. So uh, my uh, preferred uh, strategy probably would be to have an espresso, perhaps with or before a meal, because coffee is also a bitter and it can stimulate proper digestion. So, so you, you get the benefit from the caffeine and also the whole coffee bean. And um, you're having a small amount of liquid, so it's not interfering with the digestion and the caffeine and the bitters and so on is stimulating digestion. And as a result, also helps to lower inflammation, and that will impact the liver positively. Nice. Yeah, I, you know, in Turkey, we have Turkish coffee after, like, the larger meal closer to the night. Um, and are, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. The sound kind of cut out a little bit. And that coffee is a very light roast. And I've always felt really good on that, but I usually do better with caffeine closer to the night. Um, do you think that's because, well, and I'm kind of a night owl. So do you think that's because my cortisol is probably too high during the day and I'm just agitating that with caffeine, but I don't really get that response. I get a more relaxing, uh, feel good response closer to the night. Yeah. You know, it could be that you say like it's, it's stimulating the stress and everything, but I've also found that in some people, um, like specifically my wife, she actually gets tired from drinking coffee, <laughs> uh, especially like the, the stronger it is, the more like a sedating effect it has. And I think Pete spoke about this where, you know, it stimulates cellular function. And once your body is in an energized state, it can uh, like inhibit itself. So it's like that. Uh, uh, what did he mean? He called it like a, I'm blanking what he called it, like a resting energetic resting state i'm paraphrasing but it's something like that when you're energized you can uh, you know relax properly in your muscles in your brain and so on but I, but i think like in your case it's probably because of the cortisol dropping in the evening so yeah then you're benefiting to a greater extent uh, from it yeah and it could be that i've been eating all day too um, so I have adequate stores because I tend to be kind of a wound up person. Like I don't really sit still. I just keep going and going and going. So maybe, you know, when I finally get to wind down and eat more food throughout the day and stop burning through my glycogen stores so fast, <laughs> I probably fare yeah. better on it. I've always done better with fat, like half and half in my coffee, uh, rather yeah. than a lot of sugar. I feel like sugar doesn't really cut the stress response for me, but fat does. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt the same way. Like if I have like skim milk and uh, sugar, I, you know, it, it tends to be uh, not like a calm energy state. Whereas when I have it with yep. cream, 
it's kind of like this longer uh, state of calm energy where I, I think that if you're if you're feeling bad from the caffeine, I don't think it's because of cortisol. I think rather it's because of the norepinephrine uh, because oh. it's also stimulating your catecholamines because that is basically what is making you feel jittery and more energized. So it would be interesting experiment if you could take like caffeine, if, if you want to do it on an empty stomach or first thing in the morning, take Aquamatine with it because Aquamatine will help to blunt the effect of uh, norepinephrine and yeah, Aquamatine combined with caffeine, see how you feel. Uh, take the Aquamatine sublingually, the absorption would be better that way. What is this compound? I haven't heard of it before. Aquamatine is basically, I think it's a metabolite of arginine, but instead of boosting nitric oxide, it actually inhibits nitric oxide, especially the INOS and I think the NOS as well. So it's uh, it's a very interesting compound. It's basically beneficial for the whole body, but it's more studied for mental like issues specifically, like anxiety, depression, and so on, because of its ability to block um, inducible nitric oxide synthase in the brain. So that specifically have a antidepressant and anti-anxiety effect because the INOS then stimulates inflammation. And we all know that neuroinflammation is elevated in depression. So this compound is just great for um, the brain in the sense that it helps. I think it can even help against OCD, anxiety, restlessness. Um, so yeah, it just really helps to make you feel calm, calm and collected. That's the effect that I get from it. That's really interesting. I, I might have to try that. So when you're eating meat and some stuff high in arginine, does your body naturally produce this compound too? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, but but there's actually limited um, research on how it's produced or specifically how we can increase the production of it. Um, so I can't give you a specific recommendation how we can boost our endogenous production of the compound. But it, it's really interesting just to take it and see how you feel because of its strong effect on blocking you know, the release of norepinephrine. And it also has effect on lowering cortisol. So it's, it's, it's a good uh, nootropic to use. Wow, very I, cool. As a side note, I have an article on that as well. Oh, nice. Okay, I haven't seen that yet, so I'll have to look into that. Does it do similar things as red light? Because I know red light can also have an impact on nitric oxide. Um, I think, like, that's totally different mechanisms. Like, the red light improves this, yeah, the cellular function as a whole. It structures cellular function, whereas Aquamatine, um, I don't think it has that same effect specifically, but they have over overlapping pathways like uh, the red light might displace nitric oxide from the cytochrome C oxidase, whereas Aquamatine right. uh, inhibits nitric oxide synthase. So it lowers nitric oxide production. So less nitric oxide will bind to the cytochrome C oxidase. And that way it might improve, um, you know, the, the electron transport chain function. Oh, wow. Cool. All right. Well, that's good to know. I, I, didn't, I didn't, I haven't heard about this before. I'll have, I'm very interested. Um, uh, talking about uh, depression, um, anxiety, and stuff like that, do, do you have any suggestions or uh, hacks for people that they can use to kind of get out of that without relying on SSRIs? Or, or yeah, is being yeah. marketed uh, as as an as an SSRI? <laughs> yeah, um, like first again back to the gut. First place I would focus on is the gut, um, because the gut is like. <sighs> one of the major sources of inflammation and that inflammation immune response in the gut 
then influences every other organ, including the brain. And it produces neuroinflammation, like I mentioned, which is involved in basically all kinds of mental disorders, including depression. So I would first eliminate all problematic foods. Then I would make sure that I'm lowering my stress because stress is also involved in like all kinds of mental disorders. Then, then I would make sure I'm consuming all my micronutrients like zinc, selenium, um, copper, and those kind of things, which is necessary for cellular function. So first, lower the inflammation, make sure you get enough calories, you lower your stress, you get all your micronutrients, you uh, get out of a stressful life. So this would be also very important to, to look at lifestyle. Like, are you satisfied? In um, I would say that depression specifically, or including anhedonia and a lot of mental conditions is very um, different between people because it can be induced by different things. Like for example, someone might be in a job that is making them feel very unfulfilled and that is giving them anhedonia and depression. So they might have to get out of their job to change their lifestyle, go to a different location, get out of the winter, you know, get to a warmer place. And those kind of things will have a very potent effect on their depression. So it depends on what is really causing the depression, whereas someone who is, for example, eating a lot of gluten and they might have celiac disease, is creating a lot of inflammation and the immune response, and that is causing their depression. So you have to identify specifically what is causing the inflammation and address the root cause because you might have, you know, address um, it from the gut, but your lifestyle is causing it. But yes, if you address it from the gut, you will still, you will feel better but you will not feel you resolved your, your, your mental issues. But once you are in a better state of health, you might then realize that your lifestyle is causing it and that might enable you to change your lifestyle. So, you know, everything comes back around that. Um, what really fascinates me is like psychedelics in the sense that specifically LSD, where I've heard that when, when people take it, they kind of like snap out of uh, their lifestyle or their beliefs that they were in. Like, it like expanded their, their mindset and so on. And then they realized like, oh, I am in a terrible relationship or I'm doing a terrible job and then they can change their lifestyle. So that is me. But if you're in a better state of health, you have to realize what is causing you know, the issues and then change that. But like I said, I would focus first on improving the health, specifically starting in the gut, lowering the inflammation, making sure you're getting all your micronutrients, lowering stress and so on. Nice. Yeah, I, the psychedelic aspect is very interesting. I know a lot of people are microdosing and stuff right now, and they find some benefit from that. And I don't know if you know about Paul Stamets. Um, he's one of like the leading mushroom experts here. And uh, yeah, he, I haven't uh, heard of him. Oh, okay. He presented like, I think it's called like the stoned ape theory or something like that, where <laughs> he believes that the yeah. apes have found psilocybin uh, and ate them. And that's what led them to become humans. <laughs> I don't know how much <laughs> I believe in all that, but I think the, those compounds can have some medicinal effects at lower dosages. Um, uh, I don't know if I support like a full trip, but you know, everyone does their own thing. Um, yeah, for sure. So, uh, so why wouldn't someone want to focus on serotonin? Um, because serotonin is basically a stress hormone. It's, it becomes elevated during stress, or I should at least say that serotonin becomes dysregulated 
um, when there is inflammation or micronutrient deficiencies in the body. So in some areas, there might be an increase and in other areas, they, there might be a decrease. But there is enough evidence to suggest that serotonin synthesis is elevated in certain areas. The enzyme that breaks down serotonin is reduced in the brain. And that also the serotonin transporter that uh, clears the serotonin from the synaptic lifts are also reduced. So all would suggest that there is actually an overload of serotonin in the brain instead of a deficiency. And if you look at you know, the functions of serotonin in the body, because that is where research is actually showing that it is negative, you will see that it has a vasoconstrictive and an inflammatory um, effect in the body. It also like inhibits proper cellular function. It stimulates the glycolysis, but it inhibits proper oxidative phosphorylation. So you, you go back to that primitive state of energy production of the excess lactate and the insufficient CO2 production. And for some reason, researchers or the research that I'm finding online tries to make a, a differentiation between serotonin produced in the body and serotonin produced in the brain. They, now they try to say that, okay, serotonin in the body is bad for you, but serotonin in the brain is good for you. Like you, we have all heard that like 90 right. to 95% of serotonin is created in the gut mm-hmm. and people's like, okay, my gut is creating a happy hormone. My brain wants more of the gut serotonin, which is false because serotonin can't even cross the blood-brain barrier. <laughs> and so you, you can't make a case that seroton- like gut serotonin makes you feel happy when it has all these inflammatory conditions in the body. Like, for example, it's involved in hypertension. It's involved in asthma. You know, it stimulates inflammatory process in the body. So how can that be a good thing? Diarrhea. So how can... The- yeah, yeah, exactly. So how can like body serotonin be different from brain serotonin? It's exactly the same chemical. Like just an example is that um, when you look at uh, like, let, let's look at some animal models where they have actually knocked out the enzyme that creates serotonin in the body. These animals are lean and healthy. You know, they don't have any serotonin in their body, but they still have serotonin in their brain. So um there's researchers that think that, okay, you need serotonin to make you feel full. So they activate the 2C receptor, and that helps to promote satiety, helps against obesity. So that is their claim that you need serotonin to, to prevent obesity. But they've actually had an animal model with, uh, where they knocked out the enzyme that produces serotonin and the brain. And paradoxically, these animals were lean and healthy despite eating more. So, you know, there's so much fraudulent research, first of all, going on when it comes to serotonin. And so many research actually points to serotonin being elevated in mental conditions. And, you know, if that's not proof enough, there's so many research that's showing that blocking certain serotonin receptors are therapeutic for mental conditions, especially the 2A, 2B and 2C receptors of the serotonin. Um, and also activating the autoreceptors, which is basically the 1A and the 1B, can lower serotonin, and that has therapeutic uh, potential in the brain. So blocking serotonin receptors are beneficial, and lowering overall serotonin has also been shown to be beneficial. And by uh, promoting GABA and dopamine has also been shown to be therapeutic. So it it comes down to, um, like, let's go back to that 2C receptor, the, the serotonin 2C receptor. The way it promotes satiety is actually by increasing dopamine. 
so it's it's um, you know when you activate 2c it promotes a release of dopamine and that promotes satiety so if you just promote dopamine you don't need the serotonin to make you feel satiated and serotonin also have uh, more of an inverse correlation with dopamine you you won't feel great when you have elevated serotonin and dopamine at the same time so you know it gets complicated when you look at the various serotonin receptors for example if you look at 2a it stimulates or 2a and 2c it stimulates the release of cortisol we all know that cortisol and specifically the uh, the hormone that's released from the hypothalamus the uh, crf uh, uh, <laughs> i'm blanking on its name it's a crf that's basically stimulating the pituitary which is stimulating the adrenals to release cortisol so you know that hormone the crf or also known as CRH, is a neuroinflammatory, and that is elevated in depression. So serotonin stimulates things like cortisol and prolactin, and those things are elevated in mental disorders. So how can you think that serotonin is good if it stimulates the bad stuff? And by blocking the serotonin receptors, you actually see improvements. Yeah, it's a very strange paradigm, isn't it? It makes me wonder, too, where where did this even begin? I, I guess I don't know. But um, it's almost like when I discuss this people, I feel like a flat earther. They make me feel like a flat earther. <laughs> you know, so serotonin is a stress yeah. hormone. They're like looking at me like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> yeah. So would you would you say something like macuna purines? I don't know if you know about macuna, the, yeah, the yeah. legume powder. Uh, would would that be beneficial for someone to help with? I think it has L-dopa to increase dopamine. Yeah. Um, how I'm currently feeling is that I don't like inducing um, a temporary state, like you're taking you're taking dopamine, but that's not going to help you because you are not fixing the root cause. For example, sure. if your dopamine synthesis is reduced. Taking dopamine will not help. You have to restore proper dopamine synthesis in the brain. For example, bromantane can promote the enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase that synthesizes dopamine. So in the long term, that can have a beneficial effect because it stimulates um, you know, dopamine production. But I do think that in the short term, Makuna can be very beneficial because that can help you break out of a rut, for example, out of anhedonia. And anhedonia is just an awful condition to have. And if you can break out of that, you can start to get hope for life again and start seeking solutions and fixing the root cause. Whereas if you have anhedonia, you just feel like I'm not, you know, I just want to die. I, I don't have motivation for anything. So in the short term, I think using something like that can be beneficial, um, you know, to get out of a rut and to regenerate. But I think that solving the root cause, which is mo um, most often inflammation, will have a better long-term effect because inflammation is very powerful in dysregulating um, neurotransmitter function and so on. Nice. Yeah, I, I agree that you always want to address the root cause. So yeah, whenever we're talking about supplements and things to assist, I think it's good to remember that you, you know, I always talk about how people who come from like the mainstream to the more natural world or the holistic view of things, they might carry over some of their ideas of like the the one shot uh, silver bullet that doesn't really exist. That only exists to mask symptoms or like you said, break yourself out of a rut or even Ray P talks about a dose of thyroid or a dose of progesterone helping someone and they never have to take it again because it kind of kickstarts yeah. this rut that they were in. 
But yeah. it's always good to remember that if you find yourself relying on something day after day, month after month, year after year, you're probably not fixing the root cause, especially if when you get off of that compound, you return to your previous state. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I used to make this <laughs> stuff I called liquid Adderall, and I would use five, I believe, five grams of Makuna powder in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think I even put like an MAO inhibitor in there. I don't remember exactly what I used. Not a pharmaceutical, an herbal one, um, uh, if I remember correctly. So I don't want to mislead anyone. So please don't quote me on this because it was a long time ago that I produced this. But man, I tell you, I would be in a, a euphoric state. <laughs> are you? That um, sounds. Are you fond of? Uh huh. Yeah, you know that sounds great, but. You know, when you can like develop that dependence, that that's not so great. Right, right. Do you yeah. know of anything, so uh, uh, Makuna, on uh, like androgens, sperm quality, and stuff like that? Do you have any input on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, because Makuna is such a powerful stimulator, or not just it uh, provides a precursor for dopamine synthesis. Dopamine is the main antagonist of prolactin, and it can also help to lower serotonin. And just stress in general, that as a result will have a positive effect on androgens and also uh, sperm and so on. Because prolactin is a known inhibitor of um, like fertility. So dopamine, main antagonist of prolactin, and then mucuna is definitely very helpful for promoting androgens. Like I, I've seen this one testimony of someone that was using very high dose of ashwagandha combined with... Um, specifically Makuna, both of them at high dose, and he had his testosterone like over 1,500, I think, um, just from those two compounds. So yeah, lowering, because prolactin is also a, a potent inhibitor of steroidogenesis. So if you can inhibit serotonin and prolactin, you know, everything else will improve. Cool. Yeah, I remember I took one Makuna supplement that I had gotten from a supplement company i don't remember their name and it was a more isolated extract and it gave me a very uh, angry day i just became angry so i don't know <laughs> what the cause for that was but it was like an over it almost felt like i was too happy to the point where i got angry i've never experienced that before. <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> I, never, I never took yeah, that I, supplement ever again yeah i we have a company here in south africa which uh, they sell and like, I think it's a 98% extract, which I've used. And honestly, I can't say I felt anything. And mm -hmm. based on the, the testimonials online, it would seem that a 20 to 40% extract is superior to a higher extract. Okay. That, that makes sense, at least from the way that I felt. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, this is just for entertainment of the thought. I'm not saying that everyone should be on Makuna or that you should use it to mask anything. It's just a tool that you might utilize along the way. Um, so, all right. How are you doing on time? I want to respect your time. I don't want to overburden you here. You've already been with me for a while. Well, I'm really enjoying this. We can, uh, I, I'm open to continue. Oh, perfect. Well, that's great to know. Um, Let's see, we talked about the improving. Okay, so uh, we talked about starch and how that can have some inflammatory effects in some people and maybe not great digestion. I, I want to give you one of my accounts and then ask you a follow-up question. When I uh, was looking into safer chips, right, like chips that you'd use with dip or whatever, the food, 
Um, yeah. I found ones that were, you know, fried in coconut oil. And may I remind you, this is from the store. So it's in a bag. It's not homemade. And I had one of the most, and I continue to have because I love those chips. So I'll have them every so often, but I know I'm going to feel this way. Uh, high serotonin-like symptoms and gut irritation, digestive discomfort. I just feel uh, headaches, uh, uh, nasal congestion. But what do you think is causing this? Do you think it's the high amount of fat in there? Some of the compounds that are produced from frying, like um, acrylamides. Do you think it's those, or do you have any input on that? Um, uh, yeah, in my short story, uh, yeah, chips is just you know a very nice treat to have. Like there's something unique about chips. Yeah. So, uh, in my experience, we have this. Uh, it's a, it's a supposedly healthier brand, but it's not in coconut oil. Sadly, I can't find coconut um, oil chips here in South Africa. But, you know, I think it is the oil because uh, one packet, for example, was made with cottonseed oil and the other packet was made with a blend between cotton, sunflower and palm oil. So it had a significantly lower amount of PUFA. But I actually felt... Uh, worse on the one with lower PUFA and mm. when it comes to chips you know it's it's first of all they are difficult to digest first of all they are uh, by that time resistant starch they are crispy they are very difficult to digest they're uh, stale basically um, so you're, you're most likely going to have some kind of gut irritation going on you're going to have some elevated uh, release of serotonin in the gut um, what I found is that when I take activated charcoal, that helps to reduce the negative symptoms when I have these chips. Yeah, but it can also be, yeah, because these um, they add in all kinds of preservatives and flavorings, you know, like onion. Um, that's a FODMAP that can also cause gut irritation. Um, so, so I think it's a variety of different reasons. It's not just that the bufas is bad. It's also the preservatives, the additive, additives, the flavorings that they add into it. You know, it's, I don't even want to know what's the unknown chemicals that they add in that just to preserve the flavor and freshness of those chips. And then it's obviously the concern of the oxidized bufas, the trans fats, and so on in those chips. But if it's the coconut oil, uh, honestly... I think it, it's mainly because of um, the the it's because it's difficult to, to digest, and that's causing gut irritation. But also, fats tend to um, degrade, if I can put it like that, in high heat. So if you um, deep fry something that's high heat, and uh, coconut oil doesn't have a very high heat point, or um, you know, so so it degrades faster at a higher temperature, creating uh, and those byproducts can also cause gut irritation. And I think that's what I've also experienced with the palm oil. So I think it's a, it's a variety of different reasons. Do you think the fat content could be increasing gut permeability too? Um, I, I don't think so, no. It's the, the polyunsaturated fat specifically can cause leaky gut, but I haven't seen anything that saturated fat can cause leaky gut. Uh, because the you know the the polyunsaturated fat uh, make the cell membranes more fluid, and then larger particles can cross through the gut lining. But I haven't seen anything that uh, saturated fat specifically will cause that. But I wouldn't be surprised if the the breakdown products, as a result of the high temperature, 
from the coconut oil might cause in some kind of allergic reaction or uh, have that uh, effect on the gut lining where it makes it a little bit more permeable. Yeah, yeah. I um I don't go on Facebook like ever, but when I do, I follow a few repeat oriented pages on there. And there's this lady, and I can send you her. She writes pretty decent articles, and she uh, follows repeat's principles. And she even talks about saturated fats possibly being able to do that and have endotoxin enter the bloodstream more readily. Um, so I'll have to send you that. Um, I don't know how convinced yeah. I am. I haven't spent a lot of time reading that, but yeah, I've I've actually read a very good um, counter argument article in terms of endotoxins, where a lot of people say, "Oh, it's endotoxins," but if you, it's kind of like endotoxins are just present, but we don't know it's causing a lot of the issues that we think it is causing. Hmm. For example, you might feel issues straight away. But endotoxins, specifically uh, like, like um, fat-stimulate color microns, which then transport those endotoxins in the lymphic system for uh, quite a few hours before it even reaches the general circulation. So even if your body is absorbing endotoxins straight away, you're not going to feel it until se- several hours later, unless you already have that uh, permeability where then those endotoxins, and not just endotoxins, but all the harmful things that's produced in the gut are readily absorbed. Um, so honestly, I have not seen studies that show that saturated fat uh, causes leaky gut, but the, the response from endotoxins is delayed by multiple hours if it's absorbed through the color mi- micron stimulated uh, by the consumption of fat. So do you think that endotoxin still has negative effects or are you just saying it's delayed? Um, like a lot of people have leaky gut, so they are, I would almost say, almost constantly under the burden of endotoxin. And yes, endotoxin is still an issue, but I think it's not the only issue. There's a lot of different products that's been created by gut bacteria that's causing issues. That's why um, there's a lot of actually clinical trials where they block the TLR4 or the TLR2 receptor, or specifically the TLR4 receptor, which is known as the endotoxin receptor, they block that in humans with a specific drug, and it doesn't help at all in terms of health. It doesn't stop the inflammation. It doesn't promote health. So that just shows you that, yes, endotoxins is involved, but it's um, it's not the bad thing that we have to focus on. Uh, there's a lot of different byproducts that we're not specifically looking on. For example, there is um, nine different, I think there's more, I, I'm not sure if it was 11 or 12, different TLR4 receptors, and they recognize different things, different kinds of, um, like the TL4 recognizes endotoxins. The TLR5 uh, recognizes, well, I can't pronounce these things, uh, like a different kind of thing. And I think the TLR9 recognizes bacterial DNA. So it, it, it isn't just the endotoxins that's the issue. It's like different bacteria, like the TLR receptors can recognize bacterial DNA, different bacterial toxins. So it's not just the endotoxins, it's, it's everything bad that's going on the gut. You want as little gut inflammation as possible. And like I mentioned, you want a false transit time to have less bacteria in general. In, to, in order to reach a state of better health. Okay, nice. Good description. Cool. Um, 
yeah, I think there's some certain byproducts like cadaverine and stuff like that that gets produced in the gut. Is that from like, like we said earlier, like protein not breaking down properly and stuff like that. So those things would all become more dangerous than if you have a leaky gut barrier or, uh, or tight junctions that aren't, you know, the way that they're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, Cebu itself can cause leaky gut. So you... That's why it's so important to have optimal digestion and fast transit time. Because the moment when your transit time starts to slow down, you have more fermentation going on in the gut and you have a greater multiplication of these bacteria and they create more bad uh, byproducts. And then you have a bigger risk of getting leaky gut and greater inflammation. Fixing the thyroid, speeding up transit time is key. And also obviously keeping serotonin low because serotonin doesn't just promote diarrhea, but it also promotes intestinal inflammation. It's been shown to be elevated in all kinds of gut disorders like, uh, in, uh, I think, Crohn's, uh, inflammatory bowel uh, syndrome and disorder and so on. Yeah, I um, one day I ran out of milk and I wanted to have some sort of like, I have this sprouted cereal that I have. I don't know how great it is, but it's organic and it's sprouted, so I justify it. And since I didn't have the milk, I had a can of guar gum free coconut milk. So it's just pure coconut milk, no, no gums in it. And yeah. I said, oh, this will do. Let, let me just have this <laughs> with my cereal. So I dumped the coconut milk as if it was milk. And I ate this. <laughs> and this was like uh, a few hours before bed. I woke up in the middle of the night with cold sweats. And <laughs> I, I knew immediately that I essentially just chugged. Uh, blended uh, coconut fiber and immediately <laughs> I knew I was having an immense like gut reaction serotonin response I mean cold sweats and this is around the time you know when corona is really high so I'm like <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's what's happening I'm pretty sure this is the coconut milk and so <laughs> I went to the bathroom and I don't want to get too graphic but uh, I started like bag breathing <laughs> and then you know, I felt a little better uh, after going to the restroom and, you know, things, of course, didn't come out as, as they should. And so immediately I said, OK, like I wasn't thinking straight, but I was like, what can I do? And I thought about coconut charcoal and stuff. And what I actually ended up doing is taking a glass of water, putting cane sugar in it and then putting uh, mineral drops and a little bit of sodium. And I chugged that and immediately I uh, sat down, felt better and fell asleep. So That's I, I, that just kind of showed me like the extent to which gut irritation can affect you. I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that I was quote unquote sick, you know, like, yeah, yeah. but, but knowing that thinking back and considering that fiber and how much of it I just chugged essentially <laughs> the night before, uh, yeah. it was really amazing. Uh, so what, what do you think in terms of people using fibrous foods to encourage transit time? Do you think the problem lies more so with the thyroid? Yeah, um, in my experience, and there's also research to back this up, that um, there is this belief that you need fiber for transit time. But this one study that actually eliminated fiber from the diet, and these people experienced uh, no constipation or slowing of transit time, but I think they actually had an increase in transit time. And this is exactly my experience as well, that when mm. I was eating like potato and uh, I can't remember how much fiber that was. It was, I think, about 30 to 40, maybe 50 grams of fiber a day. Where, like, I also don't want to get too graphic, but, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's <laughs> it's slow it's okay. and tarry. <laughs> it's slow and tarry, and you feel like you're having an incomplete bowel movement. Whereas when I eliminated all fiber, I was basically just having uh, meat, milk, and fruit juice. I started having two bowel movements a day with the ghost wipe. It was just amazing. But recently, I have introduced um, apples. So I, I'm, I'm cooking whole apples. So I'm having about 20 grams of fiber. And my gut's still in an amazing condition. So I think it still comes down to the kind of fiber that you're consuming. But I would say that the reason why people are having slow transit time is because of inflammation in the gut. And that is slowing the transit time, most likely because the inflammation is inhibiting the thyroid function and the proper cellular function of the intestine because your, your intestine is still made of muscle and still has to contract to excrete everything. So the inflammation is messing with the cellular function and the, then the intestine cannot contract properly. So you're having insufficient bowel movement. So inflammation really does come down to being the root of so many issues. And it always comes back to the gut as being the issue. Like either you have, you are, you're having insufficient thyroid hormones or you are eating something that is producing that inflammation. Are you so just until recently, until the apples, you were on a fiber-free diet, essentially? Yeah, I think that I think it was like um three, maybe more months on fiber-free. And you felt pretty good during that time. Yeah, I felt amazing. Like a lot of people have this like critical of a low fiber diet and like especially a starch-free diet. I had a few comments where people thought that I'm gonna lose all my muscle. Because, you, you know, you need the starches to maintain your muscle. But that is exactly not what I have found. That if you make sure you're eating enough calories, you're eating your protein, you will maintain your muscle mass. Because it, I can't think of one mechanism why suddenly you will lose all your muscle mass. Why do you need starches to be anti-catabolic? Where fruits are a great source, and, you know, they replenish the glycogen source very fast and help to lower stress. So... You know, even though they are less insulinogenic, they should be equally as anti-catabolic. So in my experience, I have not lost any muscle mass or fat, for that sake, uh, since eliminating starches because I've made sure that my calories stay the same. However, I do feel that my blood sugar regulation is better now since eliminating the starches. And I do, I'm in a small deficit now. I'm trying to lose weight. And fat loss is really like amazing. <laughs> uh, like I'm not hungry. I don't have low energy. Uh, I don't have blood sugar, blood swings, or um, you know, those kind of things. I, I plan to write an article on it when I get to my my gold weight. But I really feel that uh, what I'm doing right now is excellent for fat loss. But it's just because I'm actually cutting calories willfully to make sure that I'm in a small deficit to lose weight. So your main foods were milk, meat, and fruit, or fruit juice, sorry. Yes. Like, okay, currently I'm having an organ meat blend um, and lots of apples because oranges are out of season. So now I'm like having whole apples and I'm also juicing apples like for pre-workout. And then I'm also having um, two liters of skim milk. But I have been adding a little bit of cream and sugar to my coffee, which I shouldn't be doing. But regardless of that, I'm actually still losing fat um, despite e eating a little more, which is awesome. Do you eat uh, every few hours? 
Um, I drink coffee every few hours. But no, I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have two meals a day. I basically wake up then, or my wife and I, we wake up and then we have coffee and then I might start making, preparing my first meal. But uh, basically I prepare my food and then I split it into two and then I have two big meals. So uh, like I mentioned in the form of my article, that if I don't have a solid meal early-ish in the day, I tend to become ravenous at night. And I also get this kind of like, uh, this like nauseous, hungry feeling. So I have to have meat um, earlier in the day and then I feel like very stable until later in the day. And then I work out. And so if I have to put a time to it, I would basically eat my first meal at about 10, let's say 11. And then my last meal would be at about eight. But this is the big meals. And then I'm obviously having the juice and the milk in between these. these. So I'm constantly having calories, but I'm just like, this is the big meals where I actually like have to chew. So two big meals and then, you know, liquid calories the rest of the day. And these are organ meat blends, so it's not just muscle meat, or do you have some muscle meat in there too? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm buying I'm buying from a, a like a, a farm not too far away. They deliver to my city. Luckily, uh, <laughs> so I kind of feel weird saying this, but it's actually Pitsman's, <laughs> but it's very high quality. They take premium like um, animals. They take uh, wild game like specifically kudu and then they because no one wants the organ meat so then they you know blend all the organ meat together so it's intestine it's heart it's kidney liver um and so on and i'm just you know eating bulk <laughs> organ meat right now That's very awesome. high quality though. So, it sounds good to yeah, me <laughs> so even though they say even though they say it's spetsman's it's very it's highly uh, edible and and to benefit it's it's low fat as well so it's it makes for a great tool when you're uh, dieting down well that's awesome i don't know if i'm going to be able to mimic that but I'll, I'll try i want to try i mean i can get isolated you know organs like heart and, and and tripe and liver and stuff but i'll have to see what i can come up with it sounds like an interesting protocol um yeah, i just want to sorry go ahead no no i i wasn't uh, you can oh, go okay. ahead I just want to comment that your your website is called Men Elite, but I don't want any of the females listening to feel like it's only for men. There's applicable to everybody. <laughs> so well, um, okay. No, go ahead if you feel differently. Um, well, honestly, like I started like okay. First of all, my the, the website name isn't to be. Um, to discriminate between genders or something like that, but I'm specifically writing content for men. Like all the research I do is specifically for men and and people do have to realize that there is differences between men and women. And I do not research anything in regards to women. Like my wife uh, is specifically helping women and researching things about women and writing things about that. Whereas when, if like there's obviously women reading my articles and they just have to keep in mind that it's specifically geared for men. Like a lot of my articles is for androgens, obviously. And a lot of the recommendations I might make, like tribulus, might have a like a rather androgenic effect, perhaps like mildly. So they just have to realize that everything is geared towards men because I want to focus on helping men. But I do realize that a lot of my articles is neutral in the sense of 
know how to optimize glucose oxidation or how to improve your gut health and so on. So that is why specifically my wife and I have um, co-created our gut course, like that the product that we are now going to create is going to be co-created by me and her, like the, um, so that both my audience and her audience can benefit from the same course because I don't want to create a gut course and then she creates a gut course. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't have to be specifically targeted to a gender. Right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, I I definitely see the the male um, the emphasis on the male sex, but there's certain articles like you said that women will still find uh, benefit from. But I'm glad that you clarified that because I don't want women going there and thinking that some of those like things like tribulus and stuff apply to them. So please yeah. use discernment when you go to the website and make sure that it's geared towards your sex. Um, or the article that you're reading is geared towards your sex. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I've actually tried Tribulus and I, I felt uh, very, uh, I don't know, this is going to sound kind of cliche, but masculine on it. Can you expand a little bit on that? Well, it has been shown to increase like androgens like DHEA and also DHT in some studies and also uh, actinin aromatase inhibitor, lower prolactin. Um, so in that regard, it uh, how can I say, like lower the feminine hormones, right. um, but w- it would rather be seen as the stress hormones in males um, and increase the good hormones. So tri- tribulus is not very good at increasing testosterone, but it is it can be relatively good at increasing DHEA and DHT. Like Hayden also mentioned actually that he wanted to create a product where he extracts the protodioskin specifically that compound that has the antigenic effects and make an isolate product. So I'm not sure if you're going to make that, but I'm going to be a huge fan if he's going to make that. Definitely want to try that out. I think it has a lot of potential to to block the stress and increase the, the antigenic hormones. So that's dri- derived from the tribulus? Yeah. So the tribulus like have these saponins, and one of those saponins is the protodioskin, which is thought to be the main compound to have these androgenic effects. That's why the stronger um, tribulus products is a specific protodioskin extract. You shouldn't just look for a, uh, you know, a 40% saponin. You should be looking for something like a, a 40% protodioskin extract. Okay, I see. And this is considered an Ayurvedic, uh, Ayurvedic herb, right? That's its origin? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like, I haven't looked too much in, like, those kind of classifications. Okay. I, I was doing a lot of research in, like, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and kind of those more you know, traditional uh, approaches to health, I guess, for lack of a better term. Or even, it covers even lifestyle things, too. But that's one of the things that also turned me on to Ray Pete because I, I viewed kind of the approach that Ray Pete was taking as a way to counteract you know, they go into like the doshas, right? There's like the kapha, the vata, the pitta and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and they, they're, they're basically, in my opinion, statements for the condition that the body's in, like a low energy state or a high energy state. Like one's cold, one's cold and clammy. The other one's warm, one's on fire. Like, you get what I'm saying? So Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's a balancing effect. So Ray puts it into a, like, I guess, I don't know if it would be considered modern because it, and for having old research, even though it still applies. But I guess it yeah. would be more of a modern take on the way to balance a body in modern terms because, well, the hypothyroid person is what, right, underactive metabolism, cold, clammy, slow transit time. 
Um, and then you would be counteracting that with things that are attributed to like pitta, which would be kind of like fiery, speedy metabolism, quick-witted, stuff like that. Yeah. So. Uh, interesting testimony, if I can share real quick, Please. is that um, when when I was still recovering metabolically, I was eating, like I was also cold. I was obviously, I think a lot of people experience they're colder, they are having uh, cold hands and feet. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they're having sweaty uh, palms and so on because of the elevated norepinephrine. And I have experienced that when I eat like the meat and starch, I would get very hot. And especially in the summer, this was like a real issue for me. You know, uh, they called it the meat sweats. But if, if you eat mm-hmm. meat, and I think it's mainly because of the phosphorus that really heats you up. Um, and... So it was kind of like unbearable for me because, you know, it was summer and I was like <laughs> eating starches and meat and salt and those comb- that combination is like very heating. Oh, yeah. And since really regenerating myself and healing, I don't get that meat sweats anymore. I don't get that uncomfortable temperature feeling anymore. So coming back to that feeling example, that pita, where you're having that heat in your intestine, it actually comes down to insufficient stomach acid. You're not digesting your food properly, and that is why it's creating inflammation. Mm. So when people look at that medicine, they're like, okay, I have to eliminate this and this and this is bad, and I'm going to eliminate forever. And I think that's the problem because they're not addressing the root cause. The root cause is fixing the thyroid function, improving the digestion. And yes, eliminating something that's problematic might lower inflammation, but you can also do something to increase stomach acid. Like, for example, take betaine, and that can help with the protein digestion. And suddenly your inflammation also go away while you're eating inflammatory foods. Right. Uh, so supposedly inflammatory foods. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, even I think those medicines are misquoted often, too, because people will think that they're a dosha or something is set in stone rather their guidelines as to where you are and what things you can use to balance that out so that doesn't mean that your state is stagnant or that it's 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 predetermined and it's stuck there your environment changes your behavior changes your you know relationships change and according to that you use those principles to kind of help balance that out there's yeah, a exactly. book by uh, john dooliard i don't know if you know john dooliard he's like the more popular Ayurvedic practitioner, uh, no, but he has a good heard. book. You have heard? No, I haven't heard of him yet. Oh, okay. He has a book called The Three Seasons Diet, um, and he, I, I don't agree with everything in there, but it's it's a good look if people are interested in this balancing aspect, which I think repeat plays a part in um, helping people balance themselves essentially. Um, because so many people refer to the repeat diet as like the high metabolism or the high carb diet. And I just don't really view it like that. I think it's just helping yeah. people to return, return yeah, to where their metabolism should be because so many people are below that. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm always so like, um, like dumbfounded when people say I, I am like eating this diet and I'm like speeding up my metabolism so fast and I'm just crashing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> like, you know, that's impossible you're lowering your stress. You, you can't go into a hypermetabolic state where you actually crash yourself. It, it doesn't work that way. If you eat carbs, your body is going to burn it. And, you know, if it doesn't have any carbs anymore, it's not going to crash. It doesn't, you know, oxidize your glucose at 100% rate until it's done. 
You know, it right. stores some of it, it burns some of it, and there's always a mixture between glucose and fat oxidation, and the body is very well at regulating, um, you know, the glucose and the fat oxidation, and it's not going to send you in a state where you're going to die because you don't have enough glucose. Right, yeah. I, the one thing that might be happening is that they're possibly, like, and I'm, I know you're aware of this phenomenon, they're possibly going through nutrients faster than they're used to, so that could be attributed to the gra- to the crash. Maybe they're you know, using their B vitamins a lot or something like that, or their minerals like magnesium or along those lines, possibly. No, it could be, you know, unless, uh, like, in my opinion, like, that could be if they're eating a very refined diet. But then mm-hmm. again, it would take years for something to manifest. If it's a nutrient deficiency, for example, like people have nutrient deficiencies 10 years before they get celiac disease. So you have a nutrient deficiency for a very long time before it starts to manifest into a, a disorder. So I, I don't uh, support the idea of running your metabolism so fast that like, I don't see that your body is like, uh, going hypothyroid and the next moment is going hyperthyroid it doesn't do that you know it's it's a very slow process of regeneration like i have found that you know it takes many weeks and it's a slow process like fat loss you can't rush it it's just you you have to do it at a certain pace unless someone's taking thyroid do you think that would be an exception yes i I think obviously (laughs) someone can go uh, hypermetabolic like i've also heard that people take thyroid but because they are in a stressed state they don't feel anything because all that t4 is being converted into reverse t3 which Mm. is just completely blocking the effect of the t3 right right but it is possible to use t3 and get those depleting effects so i think we're talking about like a natural way of doing it that things would take a while um to set in Um, but some people are in a place where they possibly would need thyroid, then those problems could be real. Not so, well, I guess you could kind of push yourself hyperthyroid, but you should come back from that in probably about 24 hours, as long as you don't give yourself a heart attack from such a high. Yeah. Um, and, and increasing your metabolism, if you're not used to eating wholesome, like we talk about, or if you have underlying nutrient deficiencies, uh, you could possibly, you know, make those worse, but you would then incorporate those foods that are nutritious like organ meats and stuff to help refill those stores yeah Um, so but yeah yeah i I don't think people really need to worry about uh that this is a high metabolism diet and if they follow this that their metabolism is going to go crazy and they're going to wither away (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't see that as a realistic view Um, Okay, so I kind of wanted to, and everyone has their own little opinion about what's going on right now with the virus and everything. And um, so I'm curious, you you said that your, your wife had um, the virus. Um, I don't, I I almost don't feel comfortable saying it because I don't want to get censored. Um, And I think people know what we're talking about. So do you kind of want to fill us in on that a little bit and how you went about diagnosing it, treating it, what you think about all of this, uh, if you're comfortable with it? Okay. I would like, first of all, I have to give a disclaimer that um, we didn't do what they consider to be appropriate testing. And the reason for that is uh, twofold. It's because the uh, testing is extremely inaccurate. It doesn't mm-hmm. like, yeah, we, we, we know that the testing isn't very accurate at all. Still isn't. 
Um, and second all, of all, we didn't want to go to the doctor and then, um, you know, force something like uh, medication, like specifically cortisol drugs or don't know what they might do as a result. Because, you know, when you become really, uh, how should I put this, when you become affected by your symptoms, uh, doctors might think it's something else, something severe. And, you know, maybe I've just been fear mongered because I've heard of testimonies where you go to the doctor and then they like put you on dialysis, for example, because some marker wasn't appropriate and you can't say anything about it. They just forcefully do it so that you don't die, so to speak. Especially if so, you're alone. Yeah, so we didn't want anything to be forced on us. Okay, so first of all, we didn't do the proper testing, but uh, she had all the symptoms that, uh, you know, was said to be that. And she did have fever before. She did obviously, uh, she obviously were sick before in her life. And that feeling that uh, that night when she came, you know, down with all the symptoms was completely different from what she had experienced in the past. So, and it was specifically after I went to town. So this was just like at the start of everything, you know, it was like full lockdown. Um, everyone, you know, it, it was like it, that extreme phase where everyone, um, the, the, the virus was still spreading, so to speak. So, you know, the, the one day it's in the news, the next day, you know, you're experiencing symptoms, it's in your, it's in your town and stuff like that. So I was going to the town doing some shopping and when I got back, you know, that night, she started coming down with symptoms and I was also experiencing symptoms, which was just like, uh, I don't know if it was a coincidence, but it was like, it felt, okay, you know, we went to town, it came from town and it was mm. feeling, you know, the symptoms were very unique. It was different. Um, so luckily we did have a, a couple of supplements at hand and I think I, I did write an article on a lot of antiviral substances, things that might be helpful for uh, viral, viral infections in general uh, before that incident. So we luckily did have a couple of those supplements at hand. We did have niacinamide. We had, I, I can't remember if we had progesterone. Um, um, we had methylene blue and so on. I can't remember the full list, but we, did, we luckily did have a couple of things. And a lot of these supplements, uh, substances have been shown by research to have strong antiviral effects in certain doses. So we just used those doses and maybe even a little bit higher of the necessary supplements, um, you know, just to uh, possibly nuke whatever it was and just to get our system up again. And I did also in that article that I wrote about what we gave my wife, I did make a few suggestions what we would have added if we had it, like, for example, uh, comfort strong antiviral there's also adamantane which is a very a very lipophilic compound um I, we would have used that it's very strong antiviral as well pete has written about that um inosine but at least the the stack we gave her were effective and like the very next day she was starting to feel better it wasn't like completely gone and then over the next couple of days you know things resolved themselves and you know, it kind of like occurred again when I was going to town like a second time because I wasn't going to town all that often. Um, 
I we we both felt off again, like the second time I went to town. So which was just like it wasn't a coincidence, but at least you know you, you get that uh, your body can fight it off because it isn't the first time it's been exposed to it. So I think like what happened was just because she was in a little bit more of a metabolically compromised or an immune compromised situation than I was. Um, and that's why she had those symptoms. Uh, How long I think ago that's about the story. Um, let me see. You know, I can check for you. It was like the beginning of the year, maybe February, May. Oh, wow, I can't... very early on. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, December we heard about it was in China. And then suddenly it was in South Africa. And then suddenly it was, the, the country was in lockdown, full lockdown. Sure. And uh, it, it was like weird because in full lockdown, we didn't have to wear masks. But when we um, relaxed our restrictions, we were forced to wear masks, which is really weird. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, that you, was just the experience. Sure. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys are feeling well. Do you feel Do you feel well still? Do you have any lingering anything? No, nothing at all, as far as I know. I think uh, you know everything is just getting better as a whole, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's anything lingering. Okay. Um, it, have you heard uh, Ray Pete's interviews on it? I did one with him too, and also read his article. What What do you think about the stuff he says about it? You know, I love the stuff he says about it. Um, like, I initially, I followed some of the research on it, but then I just got bored. And I, I just wish, <laughs> like everyone else, I was got bored by it. Because, you know, in, in my experience and opinion, like, with you, you get exposed to it. You get exposed to the the on both sides of the research. Some people say it's very dangerous. Some people say it's... It's not even a virus at all. And then you start to make up your mind and who to believe. And obviously I believe Pete about it. <laughs> and you just get bored about it because you know it's a political game and they're trying to extend whatever they're doing and you just get bored by it. And whatever they're doing is harming the, uh, the population, is harming the country, is harming the economy. And let's mm-hmm. just all get over it and you know stop harming the country with us that that's basically my take on it so but so i just basically lost interest and yeah i've i think i listened to that one with you and uh, ray and i've read his newsletter on it uh yeah very interesting yeah i i agree so things are pretty uh, locked down strict there too uh not at the moment actually we we uh locked down for a month uh hardcore um we uh you know it was called level five and then we went to level four level three level two level one we are currently in level one and you know the reason south africa isn't a very rich country it's a a third and they can't uh do a lockdown again despite that they want to because Mm. like there is so much poverty in south africa um like I, i honestly i think that they are not going to risk it because the people is not going to obey what they are going to say. There might be, uh, you know, an uproar. Um, you know, you're killing yeah. the people from hunger. 
So you, you're, you're trying to protect us from the virus, but you're killing us from hunger and joblessness. You know? Absolutely. So, yeah, so um, we're currently in level one, and I think they might you know, completely let go of this uh, lockdown business soon. I really hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. And you guys are going into the the summer right now, right? So yeah, um, yeah. I think hopefully people will get out of there. Well, actually, how is the how are the quote unquote winters there? What are they like? Um, I I'd say they're pretty cold. Like um, a few, <laughs> like let's put it this way: when you're going through a stressful period and you are malnourished, the winter is awful. Yes. <laughs> you are freezing. So when you are in a better state metabolically, uh, winter is not bad at all. And honestly, I like colder weather. I like like spring and fall because it's not that hot. And whereas I feel summer is a little bit too hot for me. Um, but yeah, because specifically when it comes to sleep, you know, when it's too hot, you can't sleep properly. You can't recover properly. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I just hope that. If they they don't come with this second wave thing after the summer because yeah I can tell you that I don't even think that seventy percent of the population is listening to the rules of you know keep your mask on and those kind of stuff nobody's listening to the rules and regulations anymore <laughs> yeah even here like I do yesterday or Georgie Dinkoff was talking on uh, repeat I'm, I'm sorry Danny Roddy's um, uh, YouTube stream talking about how the who the WHO um, is basically saying like the lockdowns were the wrong move, like they weren't effective. Of course, the articles that are stating this are saying that it's the fault of the people. The people didn't do it well enough, or something like that. Yeah, but that's ridiculous. actually not even. <laughs> I know, right? And that's not even really what the WHO is saying. It's just saying this was the wrong approach. Um, I don't know if they're saying the whole thing, where it's like suicides have increased, joblessness has increased, uh, ruined the economy, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I'm really hoping they don't do that too. And you know, we we have elections going on here right now, and it's just awful. I mean, it's, everything is just tainted with politics, and it seems like true science and research has just taken a backseat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really hate that when you know things become so murky between politics and and research. You know, you, you just want to get to the truth when it comes to research, but it's so uh, should I say sad that research is so dominated by who is going to make the most money and politics and those kind of stuff like the pharmaceutical companies like you know there would be so much better research if it wasn't fueled that way for the pharmaceutical people yeah and you know people uh listening to repeat stuff or i don't know if you know the john barkhausen interviews politics and science they they want ray to keep uh science and politics apart but the mainstream doesn't keep science and politics apart so i feel like we need to talk about both too in order to dissect them from each other separate them from each other so people know what's what's just political marketing and what's actual real science (laughs) yeah yeah i really appreciate how how pete i know integrates the two because it is so important to to realize that Yes, absolutely. It's it, part of the reason why things have happened in nutrition um, and I guess nutritional science or even physiology is because of political influences, both good and bad. So I think people need to realize that when they're investigating this, that it's definitely not just a lonesome entity. Nutrition isn't just an unbiased field. There's a lot of biased and twisted funding going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially when it comes to things like serotonin and estrogen 
and even things like the anti-meat campaigns and you know the vegetarian like I, I try to make people aware that you know like Pete I think Pete made me aware of this that when you have riches and abundance in a country people eat meat milk and fruit but when there is poverty and Pete talked about like specifically war they eat you know food that can store for a long time like grains and beans and vegetables and stuff like that so if you start to realize that the whole nutrition um uh, that we are being taught today is based on like poverty you know we we will snap out of like what is good and what's bad we will start to realize like okay understand why you are recommending that but that is false and you know if there is abundance we would rather be eating meat milk and fruit instead of like the vegetables and you know the poor man's food so what would you say to people that say that leads to the diseases of affluence? <laughs> I would I would say they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> because there there's there's so much uh, doctors and uh, independent researchers that are doing a very great job at bringing to light the truth. Like I really like uh, Paul Saladino because he is uh, although I don't agree with everything he is saying. He is doing great research and he, in my opinion, he wants to find the truth. Like, for example, first of all, he was a carnivore and he was all keto. Then he realized that the more he did research, that carbs is not the bad guy. And, you know, I respect him for that because he doesn't stick to his uh, beliefs, so to speak. When he comes upon the truth in his research, he changes you know, he adds in carbohydrates to his diet because he realizes that it's beneficial for him. Right. So he eats raw honey. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I don't agree with everything he's doing or saying, but like he's doing very good research to bring awareness that polyunsaturated fat is bad, saturated fat is good, looking at cholesterol, debunking all the myths when it comes to meat, um, like meat is not the bad guy that we are led to believe. And when you look at the research, it's very shady. And uh, yeah, he, his book does a very good job at, um, you know, uh, discussing that kind of science. And there's also a lot of good books that talk about saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat, and cholesterol and what's really the truth about everything. And you just have to look to the research on fruit to realize that carbohydrates is not the bad guy. And even milk, like people say sugar is bad. But if you look at all the research on fruit, it's like it reverses diabetes and all these things about metabolic syndrome. It doesn't cause them. So why do you say like sugar is bad for you? Like no one is saying you should gas a lot of Coke. That might cause issues, obviously, if you're having uh, such a devoid diet. But if you're looking into the research on fruit, it's just benefits. I don't see any negative study when it comes to fruit. Yeah, perfectly put. Yeah, I think his book is called The Carnivore Code, right? Is that what yes, it's called? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was following him too, and I, I was following Sean Baker, and, you know, I've been into Ajinus Wonder Planets, and I don't know if you know about him. Um, no, I haven't. Ajinus was one of the first, like, all meat, all raw meat guys. The primal diet is what it's called. Yeah. Um, and I think he kind of led to these guys like Sean Baker and Paul Saladino of the carnivore diet. And yeah, at first he was, you know, I think kind of on the, a little bit on the carb train saying carbs cause issues, eat all meat, be keto, like he said. And then he started calling out like linoleic acid as the main problem. And 
the unsaturated yeah. fats instead of sugar. And he was pretty outspoken and still is. And I, I agree. I, I was very surprised by that because he's has a big following. So that's really good exposure for the detriments of polyunsaturated fats. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I really respect when people like, uh, go against the grain, but they, you know, they, they keep with what they are saying because it's supported by research. Yeah. Like for example, that the carbs, like the carbs is not the bad guy, because if you actually look at the science, you will realize it's not. So it's not like you're, you're, you're building your, your castle on sand because you, you have a strong foundation with the understanding of the research that carbs does not cause issues. Yeah. Being empirical about stuff is really important. And I respect him for pushing out of that community because it would be like if someone on the, you know, in the Ray Pete community came and was like, hey, actually, PUFA is good or, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, as long as they're sincere and they think they're looking for the truth, it's like, all right, let's debate it. You know, they're not afraid to step out of the bounds. They're not exper- afraid to experiment. You know, some things can be uh, frustrating to deal with if someone's just doing it to agitate people. But if they're actually trying to pursue truth and find truth and experiment and help people, uh, I think they should be heard. And I think this cancel culture is preventing all of that, too, where everything's being canceled and, and, and censored and, you know, even podcasts and stuff like that. And it's ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I find that ridiculous. Um, well, this has been great and your wealth of information. And I really liked this whole conversation. It's been a long conversation, but, but I think it's very useful. Um, and I think people will gain a lot from this. I learned a lot. Um, so thank you very much for doing this and taking the time. It's my pleasure, man. I, I really appreciate uh, you having me on here. I, I have a ball of the time. Awesome. Cool. Um, so if you want to just hang around for a second, I'm going to stop the show and then uh, we can say our goodbyes here in a second. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and share. If you'd like to find out ways to support us, please head on over to primitiveinitiative.com.